Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. favorite if not my very favorite band erasure it's called dead of night and it's from their 2014 album the violet flame which is available on apple music so we're moving up in the world we're actually playing mainstream bands now i know let's welcome the lawsuits yeah next thing you know we'll actually have artists recording music specifically for the podcast yes that's yes. the natural evolution isn't it it that's is what we're, we're to that level yeah. yes yeah well welcome everyone to the classic horrors club podcast i'm gonna go right ahead and call episode 36 to order Richard, explain to us what significance, besides it being a favorite band of mine, does the song Dead of Night have to do with anything? Well, our theme this month is horror anthologies, and we've picked three from uh, different decades, as we always try to do, and we, of course, are starting off with Dead of Night from 1945. Uh, Long unavailable, but it finally came out this past summer on Blu-ray from... Kino Lorber, correct? Yes. That is going to be starting us off. We finally get a chance to see that, and it's pristine and uncut and uh, looked fab- fantabulous. Uh, and then we're going to do a Vincent Price film to shamelessly tie into my Vincent Price theme over at my blogs this month for the 31 Days of Halloween. We're going to be doing Twice Told Tales and uh, wrapping it up with one of uh, Amicus's best films. Asylum, or as my DVD cover called it, The Asylum. Hmm, I thought you were going to say House of Crazies, because it's also known as House of Crazies. No, this was a, uh, a DVD that I've had for quite a while. It is, it was an official release, but a bootleg slash official release. I actually didn't buy it on eBay. I bought it at like CVS Pharmacy or something. Hmm. And paid like five bucks for it back in the day but the movie says asylum but yeah the cover says the asylum it looks like a bootleg copy and it probably was made in mexico or something nonetheless that's our third film this week yes that should be a lot of fun so not just three movies but a multitude of stories that go with those three movies so we should perhaps dig in before it gets 
too long here, but we, we do want to do a couple of things we always do. First of all, welcome new members to our Classic Horrors Club Facebook page, Facebook group page. And we have one this month. We uh, are recording a little earlier than normal, so there hasn't been as much time in between uh, recordings. So I'm not bothered at all that we just have one. Uh, and especially the uh, magnitude of this one person, you know, makes it, he counts for two or three people at least. Uh, and that is Mr. Bill Mize. Welcome to the Facebook group. We are glad to have you. Bill is the man behind Bill Watches Movies podcast, which I believe as we record, he has four episodes out, and I absolutely love, love this podcast. It's a sort of hybrid of sort of what we do. I mean, he talks about a, a classic horror movie, but it's also what they call, what the kids call a storytelling podcast. So he actually tells the story he plays clips he gives behind the scenes information about yeah, he'll, the he'll stop mid-story and kind of pause and then you know like when uh in the alligator people when beverly garland makes her debut he pauses and then does a sidetrack where he talks about beverly garland so he is sidetracking on purpose unlike what we do on this <laughs> show where we just sidetrack for the heck of it yes very professional uh produced absolutely uh, yeah. and he's he's really uh, doing a fantastic job. I can't speak highly enough about that. Welcome, Bill, again. Coincidentally, Bill was kind enough to leave us a voicemail, and he did that by dialing our number 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Very good. I've been wanting to do that, and I'm like, will he know, or will we have a... I, I did know. I did know. I was waiting for you like to, to make me recite the whole number, and I was going to stumble, but I know. I know the club part. Okay, very good. Good. So let's hear uh, what Bill has to say. Hello, my Jeff. Hello, my Richard. It's your boy, Bill Mice, from the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and I just had to call and leave some thoughts and feedback on your most recent episode, number 35, the back-to-school one. The fact that I am calling when I haven't even finished the episode yet must mean that you've struck a nerve, and you have, in a good way. The way that I see it out here in the Monster Kid podcast world, or even in the film review podcast world itself, it's easy to find something good or bad to say about the acres of low-hanging fruit that are out here. You got something good to say about the creature from the back lagoon? Big deal. You got something bad to say about Plan 9 from Outer Space? Get in line. What y'all have done, and I really want to encourage you to do more often, is to find those gems, those diamonds in the rough, and have something good or at least constructive to say about them. Give us something that we've never heard of in our dang life and tell us your thoughts on that movie. You two have done that with the Back to School episode, three films I have never heard of in my life. And you've brought them to life, you've brought them into the light, and you had a wonderful and enlightening conversation about the three of them separately, and then unified them for a show that is both entertaining and enlightening. Please keep doing that. 
We need more of that out here in Monster Kid Land. I'm going to be doing the exact same thing in upcoming episodes of Bill Watches Movies. My stats have shown me that the more obscure or lesser known the movie, the higher the downloads and the greater the feedback and participation. I look forward to more great shows from you two, and I'll see you out there in the orchard. Thank you both for your kindness and support of me and my show on Twitter and Facebook, and also special thank you to Jeff for being a patron. I truly, truly appreciate it. Y'all have a wonderful day, and take care out there. I'll talk to you later. Wow, those were some amazing words. Our, our heads are swelling over here. Thank you very much for the kind words. And, uh, you know, I, I like what you said about the, the low-hanging fruit because that fruit was hanging pretty low last month's show. We, we picked some obscure stuff. And, uh, you know, this month I think at least a couple of the films maybe are a little bit more well-known than, than or more well-talked about than what we did last month you know and it does kind of fluctuate you know we've got some stuff taking a look at what we've got the next several months i think it's going to be a mixture of some stuff you know some stuff that others have talked about and others that uh, i don't think anyone's talked about and i like what you said and and that gives us inspiration maybe we'll we'll go for some of the more obscure stuff and you know and i'm going to challenge you you say you know that you want to hear obscure you know talk about obscure movies why don't you look up Beast from the Beginning of Time? And, and I challenge you, call in with a voicemail for next month's show and, and let me know what you found and if you were able to see a copy of that. I'd love to know just some random thoughts on you. That's, that's like low-hanging fruit on a tree in the back of the orchard that everyone's kind of forgotten about. So that's my challenge to you. Thanks, Bill, for that message. That's really, really kind of you to say about our, our little podcast. And I'm... I'm glad that you enjoy it, or at least are saying that you enjoy it. Speaking of other podcasts, I want to mention real briefly, he didn't leave any feedback for us this month, but he has participated on the Facebook group page. That's Chris Franklin. He and his lovely wife, Cindy, do the Supermates podcast and several other podcasts on the Fire & Water Network. Well, in September and October, they turn their podcast into the House of Franklinstein. We've mentioned that several times before. It's another podcast I love. They pair a movie with a comic book that is somehow related, and their husband and wife banter is, is very enjoyable. I, I've always enjoyed it. Although, I have a serious grudge against Cindy. I can understand if you don't like the Abominable Dr. Fives. You know, no, no bad thoughts there. However, must you mention it every time you get in front of a microphone how horrible <laughs> that movie is? That's like pouring salt into my wound. I appreciate your thoughts, but um, you're making me a little less sympathetic with each and every time that you bring that up. You mentioned House of Frankenstein, and that made me think of House of Frankenstein, which has been given a, a revival. Anthony Mann, who used to be uh, one of the hosts over at the Horror Etc. podcast that I used to listen to back in the day. Um, he does work with this company now called Bleak December, and he's been doing a lot of original audio productions with, you know, top-notch people, Tony Todd and uh, David Warner. Well, he's worked with Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker from Doctor Who. He did something a little more obscure 
I think it's just been released on CD. The House of Frightenstein, which was the Vincent Price Canadian production. I personally have never been able to get into it. I've watched some episodes, but it's a huge thing up there. It was on for a long time. He's done an audio revival of it, and Malcolm McDowell has done the Vincent Price part. I know he's going to be up at a convention, and he's getting all sorts of press for it. And he's actually a guest on another podcast that I listen to, the TV Terror podcast. And they cover stuff, you know, all on, you know, TV movies and TV episodes and such. And they actually interviewed him. So that just made me think about that. So Hmm. uh, I'll give a special shout out. I don't think Anthony listens to the show, but I know that, you know, he appreciates all the support. And he and I have talked before. So um, congratulations on another audio production and uh he's got something big brewing as well he hasn't announced it yet but it's like i guess a major coup it's it's like a major property that he's been able to secure an agreement to do an audio production of i have no idea what but uh, apparently it just keeps getting bigger and bigger for him i think he's really hit his his stride with these audio productions so he's released a lot of them through cadabra records which is going to be part of my halloween uh, listening uh, in the month of October. Very a cool. sidetrack. <laughs> no, very cool. Late breaking news. We have another voicemail from our good friend Jonathan. Let's uh, play a listen to that. We, we previewed it, and I think it's going to act as a good introduction uh, to our movies today. So take it away, Jonathan. Hey, guys. It's Jonathan. Just a quick check-in. Um, loving the uh, last episode of the Classic Horrors Club. Um I, of course, of course, still way beyond, did not um, um, get to the uh, all the films for this week, although I have seen Asylum, and I know that's one of uh, Jeff's favorite uh, of the anthology films, I believe, of the Amicus, I believe it's Amicus, uh, anthology films. Uh, really enjoyed it. Love the, uh, the opening score for that. Really sets the tone. That Asylum, the physical Asylum, is amazing. It's got a great cast, a lot of familiar faces. Uh, the names escape me, but definitely a lot of familiar faces from films, mostly in the 70s, I think. Um, so really looking forward to hear your take on that. I think the other one was Twice Told Tales. I think I've seen bits and pieces of that. Um, I mean, I've seen a good bit of Price films, but I um, don't believe I've seen that in its entirety. And the other one, the other third film escapes me. I know it has Night in the Tile title Dead of night i know it's not color of night <laughs> um but i'll get to that um and actually i have a question for you guys so i have a flight to california i have to go to california this coming uh wednesday i'm going for five days so that's you know good bit of time in the air going and coming back so any film recommendations good shocktober halloween season recommendations you want to make um i'm all ears um and other than that, yeah, still, uh, still, uh, gearing up for, uh, for, uh, this conference that we have coming up. And once I get back, I can fully dive into the Halloween season, uh, with Stella. Uh, I think we've narrowed down what her Halloween costume is going to be or one of her Halloween costumes is going to be. I'll show you guys in on that, or I'm sure you'll see it on Facebook. Um, but other than that, yeah, I just wanted to check in very quickly. Um, and, uh, looking forward to, uh, the next cast and um, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. 
That is so great to hear from you. Uh, coming in the 11th hour here, or, or 11.59.59. But hey, you know, our recording schedule kind of bounced around. So we appreciate you calling in. You know, love to hear your thoughts. And hey, it's, it's okay if you didn't see all the movies. You know, Asylum, yeah, I think that's, you know, going to be probably the favorite for a lot of people of the three that we're talking about this week. And one that's been just recently released on Blu-ray neither Jeff or I have but I think after seeing my copy of the DVD I really want to do an upgrade to it uh, it deserves a blu-ray copy so we'll need to take a look at that down the road y- you wanted suggestions on Halloween movies and you're talking about you know that you're going to be flying and my thought was go with a, a horror anthology because you never know when you're going to have to be you know stopping and, and you know picking up the movie again so you can stop after one of the segments and then pick it up a few hours later or you know as you're in the hotel or whatever gosh there's a gazillion to choose from i'm just looking randomly at the shelf here you could go for stuff like uh tales from the crypt or vault of horror those are pretty readily available torture garden i mean gosh anything from amicus you can go with something a little more modern like trilogy of terror or even more recent uh trick-or-treat which is one of my favorite anthologies of recent memory i don't think it's going to be released on blu-ray in time but it might be on demand the scary stories to tell in the dark which is kind of an anthology of sorts i love that movie uh that was a lot of fun and there's a lot of more obscure ones um dark places uh with christopher lee um the uncanny with Peter Cushing, recently got a, a Blu-ray release. I think that might be a little harder to find. But I don't know, what are some of your thoughts about, you know, movies to watch? Well, I didn't think of logistics like you did, which is very smart, but I just thought of good movies I like, and these are all sort of related to this episode and to his voicemail and to a text I'm going to relay in a minute. First of all, I would say Magic from 1978, a um, another ventriloquist dummy movie and of course that's a huge part of dead of night so that's on my mind that's a good Uh, one we'll be making comments about that uh, when we get to that um if you want something newer that you may not have seen because you were i don't know having a baby or something uh my favorite horror movie last year was hereditary uh with tony collette uh that is really really good and you know if you want one you may have missed in the last couple years i'd recommend that and then uh, my last one is just my favorite Hammer film. Uh, this ties in with your, your next question in a minute. But Twins of Evil from 71 is, uh, is a great Hammer film if you haven't seen that. And your question by text was, uh, could we recommend any books about Hammer? Uh, because you had kind of a taste for, for reading and learning more about them during the month of October. Richard, you want to talk about the one? Well, Marcus Hearn has written several books uh, about Hammer, and, and I think the best is what what the Hammer story. Yep. I've had that for quite a while, and that's a fantastic book that goes into a lot of good details about virtually every movie made during Hammer's prime and some films that don't get talked a lot about because they're not Hammer horror. But, you know, Hammer did some, some great adventure films, um, did some great war films it was at camp on blood island i saw not too long ago actually i think it was on television so there was some really good good you know stuff in there that's a good, really good book any of his books you know the art of hammer and uh 
the what hammer glamour what's what's the title hammer of that glamour one? the hammer vault yeah any of the, any of those would be would be great to, to have and uh, i don't know what other suggestions yeah those are the the last three that we mentioned are uh, for lack of a better word more of more graphic picture but beautiful color photos maybe not as much as the history or, or deep story that the hammer story would have my only other comment on that was earlier this year a book came out called hammer complete uh, it's by Howard Maxford. It's got a hefty price tag of $95, so I have not invested in that yet. But supposedly it's the end-all, be-all of, of Hammer. However, there is another one coming out, and I believe it's the Hammer Encyclopedia. I am surprised there could be new information still coming out. I don't know if this is the same recycled information repackaged or repurposed, but most of these books are beautiful. They have great information. Really, your your choices, you have, you have a lot of choices. And I would say, based on what we've both seen or aware of, the Hammer story would be my recommendation. But, you know, also check out some of these new ones that are uh, coming out. Uh, maybe this the uh, hammer story will just kind of whet your appetite and then you can dive into some of the others so and one other bone to pick so what are you doing calling in voicemail and then giving us tasks you know you're the one that's supposed to be working and calling in and giving comments and here we are recommending movies and books and no i'm just kidding i hey, we love that yeah put yeah. us to work yes put us that's to work. great i appreciate that you would be interested in our opinion on that. I will add one thing here. You didn't ask, but what movies not to watch on the plane? You would probably want to avoid any of the airport films. <laughs> uh, airplane you could probably get by with. That might concern you a little bit about who's flying the plane, but uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just thought of that. Thank you again, Bill. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's uh, wrap up this segment, and we will be back to get into our featured movies. Craig? Milk and sugar, Mr. Craig? Still there. So it isn't a dream this time. I beg your pardon? Yes, it isn't a dream this time. I must be going out of my mind. You see, everybody in this room is part of my dream. Everybody. Gosh. Good Lord, really? Very extraordinary. You're kidding. Not all of us. I can only tell you that when I came into this room, I recognized you all instantly. Having seen all our photographs in the newspapers, I take it up to their stopping. <laughs> of course, you may have seen me on the sports page. Motor racing's my life. That's my chance. I can't make it. I can't make it. That's room for one inside, sir. I came back. 
For a long to a man who's crippled who accused his wife just as you're now accusing me. You're sort of teamed up with him, aren't you? Him? My good man, think nothing of it. I'm just about through with that cheap hand anyway. Oh, You'll be sorry for this later, you know. Yes, suppose I will. Guests at a country house take turns telling supernatural tales, including architect Walter Craig, who feels like he's stuck within a recurring nightmare. All right, we are ready for our first film, and it is Dead of Night, 1945, a film that up until this past July was a very hard film to find. It had never been given an official commercial release here in the States. And if you had a copy of it, it was most likely a bootleg copy and might not have been complete depending on your original source material. I saw this film about 15 years ago, probably on Turner Classic Movies, but it might have been another channel. And it was not the uh, the uncut version. I know that it had the Christmas story in it, but it did not have the golfing story. The Christmas story may have been cut, but I know that it definitely didn't have the golfing story. This is the first time that it's been available uncut on Blu-ray. I thought the picture looked amazing. It came with a rather lengthy documentary, didn't it? I, I, if I remember, it came with a documentary that I'm going to have to chuckle a little bit. Uh, there's some very animated people in that doc. Did you watch the documentary? Okay. There's some very animated people. Uh, Kim Newman, you know, who pops up. Yes, he's very animated. And I don't know who the name of the other person is, and I'm not making fun of him, but it was just such a contrast. They had somebody that I believe was from Scotland and very kind of monotone, knew, I mean, facts about films, British films, knew their stuff. But it was just like night and day. Whenever they would put those two people back to back, it was it was kind of funny. But it was a good documentary that that uh, gave some insight to the film, and you can always expect not a lot, but usually a, a few good things on a Kino Lorber release. They they don't pack a ton of stuff like Criterion on their films, but usually they they give you a good uh, documentary or interview with somebody. I just watched More Dead Than Alive, the Vincent Price film from '69. Have you ever seen that? No. Um, already going on a tangent. That movie is a movie with a twist that will throw you for a loop at the end of it. I'm not going to give it away, but a really good Western, and you expect most Westerns, I mean, Italian Westerns don't even have it. You know, spaghetti Westerns don't always have the good ending, but usually there's some type of happiness, and this one, man, it's gut punch at the mm. end major gut punch i the look on carla's face and my face my jaws dropped because i didn't see it coming at all and uh but there's a really good interview on that with clint walker um that was done uh 
a couple of years before he passed, and he's like a legendary Western film star and television star, and uh, it was good to kind of get his comments in the film and working with Vincent Price and and such. So yeah, you get this, some good stuff with Kino Lorber, and they did that on this one, a nice package and a good price for this for this Blu-ray too. It's not very pricey. I think it's less than twenty dollars. So uh, what'd you think of it? I had seen it once before, and I'm certain it was on Turner Classic. I was so excited to see it. You know, it comes with a, a really good reputation, and a lot of people credit it as being, uh, you know, in, uh, influential on them. And, and you can see that. You can recognize parts of it in more movies that have come since then. But I, I didn't quite get it at that time. And to be honest, when I rewatched it, I'm still not in love with it. I haven't quite put my finger on what it is. Uh, I think one thing is the length. I think it is awfully long. There are parts of it that, well, there is one segment. Well, okay, I'm back up for a second. So in most anthology movies, there's usually one story to me that stands out that is just universally agreed that is the best. This definitely has that. The others, and in this case, there are five, of different lengths. I could see how, although they do kind of tie together at the end, I could see how cutting one of them out to shorten the running time would probably help me appreciate it a little more. But it is beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. It's well made. Uh, the other thing, it, although the the stories weave through the uh, rap, what I call the wraparound or the framing sequence, they're all shot by different directors. So there's a little bit of maybe inconsistency or not a... a there's, there's a lack of cohesion, yes. I think, between the, the stories. They're very unique and very uneven, I think. Um, and I'm sure that has to do, you know, in part due to the, the direction. You've got, you know, five different directors. They're going to each have their own particular style. And that's unique because even though you, when you deal with some anthologies, they may have different writers for the segments. Usually there's one director kind of steering the ship, and this one was, was definitely different. But this was also in the early days of anthology films. Um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think. There is one film that came out, I think, maybe the year before, called Flesh and Fantasy. Have you ever seen that? No, but I'm aware of it. Um, I've got it. It's a good film. It's not a straightforward horror film. It's more of a fantasy film. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the cast. I want to say maybe I'm probably wrong. I don't. Maybe Barbara Stanwyck's in it. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, and it, I'm not even sure if it's ever been officially released. It's a hard film to find. At least it used to be. Before that, I don't know of any, you know, anthology films really off the top of my head. So this was the first horror one, I believe, and um, certainly one of the first anthology films which are now very commonplace and certainly were as you got into like the, the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of anthology films. That's I think, adds to the hype behind this one. And the fact that, again, that for so many years, I think that it was unavailable. As, as with anything, if it's unavailable, you know, people start praising it because it's the film they can't find or it's, it's really hard to find or they get, you know, a rough copy of it. Oh, and wouldn't it be nice to have a good copy? And, I'm, and I agree with you. It's, 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 not my favorite of the three films that we're watching uh, this week. I enjoyed it, but I, I kind of with you. There, there's something holding me back from thinking that it's 
the most amazing anthology that I've ever seen. I would not place it on a top ten list of the scariest movies I've ever seen. A couple of the segments are really good, but you know, not necessarily the best anthology film I've seen. Yeah, and that's the thing, and we're going to talk about it later, I think. We're, we're going to kind of pick our favorites from each of these and put them together to make our own anthology. I think pieces of this as a standalone would be exceptional, but they're just not, to me, the, like you say, the whole thing is not real cohesive. I think the reputation of this, the history of this movie, I think is precedes it and, and maybe elevates it a little more than the actual quality of the movie. For example, this was made in England at a time when there were not very many horror movies being made. In fact, the year before, well, I take that back, I don't know if it was the year before, but during World War II, there was actually a ban in in uh, the UK on horror movies. So uh, this it was unique at the time. Uh, there weren't a lot of others like it. Uh, and so I think it's significant for sure, and it's not horrible. It's it's just not one of my favorites. And I think I may have said five directors. There's actually four directors, but five stories. So that, I think that's where I got confused on that. So I wanted to make sure we didn't have to take care of that in next month's episode. How do you want to approach talking about these? We we sort of did the framing sequence in in our little synopsis. Do you want to briefly talk about each story, or do you just want to talk about? ones we liked or well maybe yeah let's maybe just kind of briefly touch on each story then um, let's i guess starting off with the the framing story um i actually love the uniquity about this one i mean you know a lot of times the framing story works sometimes it doesn't this one is interesting because it starts off with walter craig driving to this you know uh, house in the country, essentially, meeting what, uh, is it Mr. and Mrs. Foley? El- Elliot Foley and Mrs. Foley? Anyway, meeting a, uh, people. And they're actually there with a bunch of other people, and they all start kind of sharing a story, uh, a ghost story, essentially, with him. Now, Walter Craig, there's, at the end of the movie, I guess I'm going to have to kind of jump ahead a little bit, Something happens at the end, and we'll talk about it, but there's a throwback to something that you need to catch at the beginning part of the film that kind of adds to the the twist at the end. But when he walks in, he puts his his coat and hat or whatever, without even looking, he knows right where to put it. Did you catch that? I did not. I did when I watched it, and I thought... That's kind of weird because he's supposedly never been there before. Spoiler alert, that's that's an indication of something and that was so yeah, he he does it without even really noticing or paying attention that you know, like I mean you walk in, you you look for something, you know. I suppose maybe he just saw it, but keep in mind that there's a, a twist at the end that indicates that maybe he's been there before. So that, that if that was intentional, then that's that's a cool little um, addition uh, to that moment before we dive into the to the stories proper. Now, I loved Walter Craig. I, I need to talk about the actor who played him. May Morgan. I interrupt just a sec? Though? Yeah, you refer to the end as a twist, and I don't see it that way. I mean, don't you kind of know as you go along what is is going on? 
I, I mean, I guess it's not spelled out for you, but you know, he claims he's experienced this before, and that he's I guess seen so. That. And so, uh, I guess that that's I guess when when it actually happens at the end, the end of course goes back to how it starts. I mean, that's the question. I guess maybe the the little, not maybe not a twist, but. Is is you know is this now definitively happening, True. or is it a dream? Is he right. caught in this loop? You don't know that. Yeah. That kind of leaves you maybe a, a cliffhanger of sorts. It's like you don't know. It's like, are, am, am I seeing just another dream, or am I seeing reality? You know. Right. Right. So I think that was that was fun. I loved Walter Craig, Mervyn Johns. You re- did you recognize him? You know, I didn't, but that name is definitely familiar. If you love A Christmas Carol, 1951 version of A Christmas Carol is my favorite. The one with Alistair Sim. Ernest Thessinger plays the the Undertaker in a brief role. He played Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol. Now, I, you know, one of my favorite Bob Cratchits, actually, that movie is, that 51 version is a classic. I watch it every single year. He was also in a lot of other films, though. He was in a film we talked about. Way back, one of our earliest episodes, Day of the Triffids. He was in the 63 version of that. He was also in uh, The Old Dark House from 63. And he was also in Moby Dick in 56. So kind of a well-accomplished actor and a lot of other roles that he played. Roland Culver plays Elliot Foley. And about the only thing I saw him in was Thunderball, the 65 version of Thunderball. But I mean, honestly... In those James Bond movies, you can probably connect everything in James Bond to like any other British film. I can. I'm not even going to mention how many times I saw the Avengers pop up in list of credits. I'm going to own it right here at the beginning, folks. No Doctor Who connections. Two movies made in the UK. I, I figured. No, my gosh, there is a Doctor Who connection. I just thought of it. Never mind. We'll talk about that later. Erase that. I've I've, I've just <laughs> sat here. It had a revelation. How could I have missed that? Okay, never mind. Great podcasting here. Um, so we dive into the first story, and and we have the hearse driver, the the character of Hugh Granger. This was an odd one. I mean, it kind of creepy, I guess, in a way, but very short for an anthology film, and creepy but not scary i didn't think anyway what what did you think about the hearse driver well and i want to back up just a hair because one of the things that i didn't quite get about this and i'll just throw in there that it is very british so i did sometimes have trouble catching what they were saying Um, thank you for i i i've always wondered it's like sometimes i watch them especially movies in the 30s and 40s You've got to concentrate a little bit. If they start talking a little too fast, it's like, hey, you're losing me. Hang on a second. So so I kind of I want to see what you thought about the way they incorporated these stories. Like, why are these people telling these stories of the supernatural? And the first one is kind of, it kind of melts into the, the framing sequence. And uh, they're, they're talking about if they believe they can see into the future or not. And so here is a story of why this man thinks that he can, and he tells this story, which is about seeing into the future. So that sort of makes sense. It's sort of organic. Some of the others are not quite the same. Like, why does the girl start telling the Christmas story? That's true. Uh, And, you know, one other thing I want to say in the movie's favor is that it is very 
cleverly structured. I mean, you've mentioned the sort of loop that it's in, but it's like a story within a story within a story. I mean, yeah. there's flashback within a flashback. It it is it is very or is that clever. A dream within a dream. I don't know. Yes, yes. You know, that's all very very clever and unique, and I think contributes to its you know status. But um, anyway, back to what I'm saying. When we get to the other stories, maybe you can remind me how those kind of fit in. Why are they telling these stories? That's a good question. I mean, basically, I think it's as you know, as the movie goes on, you got one person telling a story, and then if you're in a group of people, sure, and it's like, oh, well, I've got something. I've got a story, and well, you know, well, I've got something. I think that's kind of how it how it flowed for me. Is like there there yeah. one person starts, and then it just kind of like a domino effect. Uh, I did want to say there was a really cool kind of a very quick scene. You either caught it or you didn't in the hearse driver. When he wakes up in the in the hospital bed, did you notice how, of course, it was all dark? And when he pulled back the blinds, it was daylight. And that was intentional because if you looked at his expression, he's looking up at the sky to see that day had suddenly become night and then of course then he looks down and sees the the hearse i just thought that was kind of a a cool little touch and little things like that that definitely make this movie stand out and and you know get recognized because that's that's little touches like that that we didn't necessarily see you gotta remember 1945 horror movies or or supernatural or ghost stories weren't necessarily mainstream and they they were made, obviously, there were a lot of them that were made, but they were often, especially by the mid-40s, they were B-movie fair. They weren't necessarily, you know, the the main event. And so whenever you see a film as well-made as this one, despite its its unevenness, you got to recognize those little uh, special moments that they throw in like that because nine times out of ten we didn't get that in a lot of the horror movies that we were seeing at the time. And to answer your original question, I liked this segment. I thought it was effective and creepy. I liked the sort of simplicity of it, the the, the brief way. I, I I liked it. It was it was good. It was creepy. It was unusual, and, and it had a nice little uh, sort of stinger at the end. It was the right length. I mean, sometimes, as with anything, you can go on too long or too short, and I thought that was it was the right length. Next up, The Christmas Party, with uh, Sally Ann Howells playing Sally O'Hara. And this one I thought was interesting. Um, i gotta, I got to throw this in. So Sally Ann Howells, have you seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang I have. Oh, not recently. Okay. Um, I haven't, and, and you know, Carl and I do musicals on, on a lot of Sunday nights, and that's on the list. Haven't seen it. Apparently she's in that movie playing a title. It's been so long since I've seen this film, but she plays the character of... Truly scrumptious. I, so that just makes me really want to see this one sooner than later. This was interesting. So this this is actually kind of somewhat based on a true story. So we have different writers who wrote the... the well, we have two authors to the screenplay, John Baines and Angus McPhail. The stories come from different sources. This particular story was written by... Angus McPhail, and it is based on an event that of true events, the story of uh, Francis Kent being murdered by his sister. Francis was murdered at the age of 44 at Road Hill House in 1860. 
His half-sister Constance was 16 at the time and arrested for the murder, put on trial in 1865, served 20 years in jail. She was released, immigrated to Australia, and she died at the age of 100 just one year before the release of this film. Hmm. So the ghost elements not based on reality, but the story mentioned in this story actually was was based on real events. I liked this one. This was... It was kind of weird. Again, you just a random Christmas party thrown in, and the kind of I don't want to say old dark house, but you know the the shadowy part of the house and and secluded. There's a party going on, but you've left, and now you're all alone, and you find this secret room, and kind of some of the classic ghost telling elements. You the the mysterious crying or whatever you hear and. I don't know. Um, I, I I liked I liked this one for how it played out for the most part. I mean, I I didn't necessarily wasn't a fan of, of the the ending per se, but I did like the overall uh, concept behind it. Yeah, I did too. It was very effective, uh, sort of moody. I find it uh, now looking. Of course, I watched it a week ago. It could have been ten years ago. I find myself remembering the least about that segment than I do uh, the others. This was supposedly cut from early versions of the film in in another segment we're going to talk about. Other versions, it was edited down. It was intact, but not complete. I don't remember which version that I saw when I saw this like 15 years ago. I remember it was in it. It may have been edited. I, I honestly don't recall if it was or not, but I do remember that it was definitely part of, of the uh, the copy that I saw. You know, I guess you could have edited out some of the Christmas elements to it, but I don't know really how much you could have edited from the story. Right at the top of my head, I'm not thinking of anything that really drug on about it. It was told at a fairly quick pace oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah definitely, uh, definitely a fun, a fun segment. The Haunted Mirror. This was probably the most standard story, I would say. Uh, it maybe had the, the least unique qualities of the others, do you think? As far as, yeah, I mean, yeah, for a standard, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, Well, standard by our standards yeah. back then, perhaps not. This element, uh, I'm trying to think of this. So this one's The Haunted Mirror. Who wrote this one? John Baines, who wrote the screenplay, wrote this one as well as the dummy segment we're going to be talking about. So, And you've got Ralph Michael or Michaels as uh, Peter Cortland and Googie Withers as Joan Cortland. I don't, to me, I don't know, when I saw this, I thought this could be... And, and I think you know, haunted mirrors have been done in other you know, things. And I think Twilight Zone may have had one or Night Gallery may have had one. That's what immediately what I thought was like. I'd kind of seen the haunted mirror thing and other things, and almost done a little better. Yeah, not bad. Just kind of standard, standard fare, I guess. You mentioned something, and I I read it, but I did not dig in deep enough to like give specific references here. But you mentioned Twilight Zone, Night Gallery. Many of these stories have been remade for episodes of Twilight Zone. Uh, if I think it was Wikipedia. If you look up Dead at Night, it actually gives a list of other versions of these stories. 
Uh, and it's not necessarily that they're remakes of these particular versions, but it's just, you know, someone else making the same story. And so it's very interesting. You may very well have seen a version of this same story in some other show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's about all I... I mean, yeah, I don't yeah, know what else to yeah, say about it. I mean, it's, uh, it was good, you yeah, know. Yeah. All right, so the golfing story. I'm going to give my, my, my cool little trivia about it, and then we can talk our thoughts on it. So, essentially, three people in this one. You've got uh, Basil Radford as George Parrott, Naunton Wayne as Larry Potter, not Harry, but Larry, <laughs> and Peggy Bryan as Mary Lee. This is based on an H.G. Wells story, probably rather loosely, the story of the inexperienced ghost. And what I did not know is that Basil Radford and Naughton Wayne had played a version of these characters before. They actually played a variation of these characters called Charters and Caldecott in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes in 1938. And that was specifically why they were hired to play these characters. That was the intent behind it was to kind of pattern the characters after those characters they had done some seven years earlier. And apparently they did it in other movies, too. Uh, it wasn't just these two. So they, they did these similar type characters. This is definitely a comedic segment. And I hated this segment. I, I, I did not get into this. And just look right oh now. Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know why. I just... I loved it. I It's different. It stands out. But it's very funny. I liked it. I, for some reason, I just couldn't get into it. Um, well, it's a change of tone. I mean, it doesn't well, really yeah, fit. It but. doesn't fit, and maybe that's why. I think it just... I was I was in creepy mode, and then there's this golfing story. This was edited um, originally, you know, from, from, the, from both edited versions of the film. It's missing. It was not in the version that I saw 15 years ago. Whether you're watching the the full Christmas party or the edited Christmas party, the golfing story is missing from those. So this is the first time that a lot of people are probably going to be seeing that. And uh, I don't know. I could see why this could be cut because it is such a different change of pace. That said, now that you know, I started watching the Hitchcock films years ago. I want to get back to that, but who knows when that's going to happen. Nonetheless, I didn't make it to The Lady Vanishes. I was a few years ahead of that. Now that I know they play similar characters in The Lady Vanishes, it really kind of piqued my interest a little bit. So maybe I need to go back and revisit it. Maybe I need to watch The Lady Vanishes and then go watch the golfing story segment again, and maybe I'll have a better appreciation for it. This might be one of those cases where my frame of mind was wrong at the time, and I'll go back and watch it again, and I'll appreciate it. But in this particular viewing, I just I felt it was out of place. Yeah, I can see that. You know what just dawned on me? I, I was saying that there, I didn't really understand why people were telling these stories. And that's true on the front end. But I recall now, if you look at the back end of each story, there is a character that's at the country home that's the psychiatrist, right? And he's trying to tell them how... Each of their stories is not really supernatural. Yeah. There is a scientific yeah, yeah, yeah. explanation for everything. So that does come after the each story, and it sort of ties them together, uh, which 
I'm jumping ahead if that's okay. That leads to the next one because they're challenging him like, don't you believe anything that happened? And he said, well, there's one story that has made me wonder. And uh, that really leads into the ventriloquist dummy. This one was uh, written by John Baines. Should also, I guess you should mention uh, some of the other other writers, I guess, before we get to this. We mentioned H.G. Wells and Angus McPhail. E.F. Benson, he did the framing story as well as the the hearse driver was actually based on a story that he did called The Bus Conductor. And then John Baines, as we said, did the, the Haunted Mirror and the Dummy. From the directing standpoint, you had Alberto Cavalcante did the Christmas and dummy segments. Uh, Basil Dearden did the uh, the Hearst segment and the framing story. Robert Hamer, or probably not Hammer, Hamer, uh, did the Haunted Mirror segment. And Charles Crichton did the golfing segment, which I found very interesting when I looked at his credits. And I guess let's just do a quick sidetrack so we can move back to the dummy story. Charles Crichton also directed a, a highly popular film called The Lavender Hill Mob in 1951. In his late 70s, he also directed A Fish Called Wanda in 1988. Huh. So if you think about it, that makes sense because he direct, directed the very British humor in the golfing story, and that's the craziness and zaniness of A Fish Called Wanda. There's a definite connection there in his style. So... I thought that was kind of interesting. So, anyway, we get to the ventriloquist dummy, which is the final segment. Michael Redgrave playing uh, the character of Maxwell. Of course, he was in a lot of different films, including Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes in 38. He also narrated A Christmas Carol, the animated version in 71, which featured Alistair Sim reprising his role from the 1951 Christmas Carol. So everything kind of comes in full circle. And then, of course, um, Frederick Valk plays the character Dr. Van Staten. This is the segment that is a classic. Uh, it, I don't know. I mean, I think this, was this the very, this wasn't necessarily the first doll come to life uh, movie because I know Devil Doll in, what, 36 with John, no, Lionel Barrymore. Uh, for MGM, that of course had dolls that were, you know, coming to life, and and or people turned into dolls that were coming to life, and so I mean that that concept had been done before, but I think this was the first time that a ventriloquist dummy was was coming to life, and of course that's a theme that would be picked up numerous times and is still being picked up. You mentioned the film Magic earlier, and of course that's there would be no magic without this segment i i believe honestly well it's pretty much a a modern version of it 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 really is so yeah it it holds up i mean there's nothing as creepy as as dolls coming to life even when you you get towards the end when they're obviously using a i don't know if it was a um you know a, a short actor or a child actor but the the dummy clearly not the dummy anymore it's a person in a suit even that's creepy. Uh, got a creepy mask on that resemble the dummy's face, and and uh, that that of course a dream sequence really because there's the people at the door and 
Yeah, this this segment's this segment's creepy. There's no way around it. Carla did not like this segment at all. <laughs> she does not like dolls, but uh, she loved it, but she hated it. Yeah, this. If you had any doubts about the movie up to this point, this is, as we said, there's always the one segment that makes a makes a, a horror anthology, and I think this this is definitely it. There's a couple of other strong segments, but this one is by far the strongest. Yep, I agree. And oddly enough, I don't have a lot more to say about it. I mean, it's just, it's terrific. Yeah, I mean, I I can't explain it. I don't have. Yeah, it's very well done. Yeah, very suspenseful. And uh, like I said, you know, you look at anything that was done after that. I know there's a Twilight Zone episode with a dummy, and um, it, it all you know, harkens back to this first film in, in 1945, Dead of Night, that featured that. So, um, well worth the price of admission alone just for this segment. Yeah, I mean, I again, this this is a, this was a fun one to start off with. I guess I also want to mention Angus McPhail. So, you know, he wrote the, the Christmas Story and then also wrote the screenplay. He did a lot of work with Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, not surprising. Uh, his two um, propaganda films... Bon Voyage and Aventure Malgache, uh, also Spellbound, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and uh, The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda. So I, not necessarily that he wrote all of those. I think he did some contributing dialogue to one of those films, but nonetheless uh, definitely uh, made his impact in, in working with Alfred Hitchcock. So Dead of Night. Yeah, if I had to sum it up, it was a lot of fun. Not my favorite of the three. Has a few weak segments. Is it worth all the praise that everyone gives it? Yes and no. I think I think it's gotten a little bit more hype over the years because it's been mostly unavailable. I think this is one of those things where it's available. No one will be disappointed with it, but it might not. If you're going to go in with super, super high expectations, and if you've seen other horror anthologies, you know, you might... I don't want to say be disappointed, but you might be let down just a little because, you know, there's a lot of good anthologies out there, and, and this is certainly a good one. Uh, there's a, a lot of them out there that are worse, but there are definitely some out there that are better. So um, I think it's a great start, and it's and it's certainly sub- should be in your collection just for um, the fact that, you know, it wasn't available for so long and that it is a classic in that regard, so... Yep, those are all my points. I agree with you. Um, saying anything else would just be redundant. You can get it for about $20 on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, so, which is another thing. All of the movies we're doing this month, unlike last month where you couldn't find any of those films, all of these films can be purchased for less than $25 on Blu-ray, no less. So this one, yeah, you can get it for about $20. Um, easily found. So before we leave 1945... I did. What happened in 1945? We hadn't done that year before. I thought we had. We had not. And then once I started going through the details, I was like, yeah, we definitely haven't done this before. Because 1945 was a huge year. Um, This was, of course, the end of World War II. There was a lot of events that happened in 1945. We have the death of President Roosevelt. Harry Truman becomes president. Um, We have... The defeat of Germany. We have a lot of U.S. ships. There was a couple of big ships. I can't remember. Maybe the USS Franklin, maybe. Uh, We lost a couple of big ships um, in the Pacific War, uh, or the Pacific 
portion of the war. And uh, then, of course, we had the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We had Winston Churchill was Prime Minister of England until July 26th. Post-World War II, it was Clement Attlee. Uh, Joseph Stalin was the Soviet leader. And Italy lost their leader in Benito Mussolini, who was executed. Post-World War II, of course, 50 nations signed the United Nations Charter. So a lot of big world events there. More uh, outside of, of world events, George Orwell published Animal Farm. We have uh, a lot of birthdays. Memorable people born in 1945. Henry Winkler, Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, uh, the late Davy Jones, Steve Martin, and Ron Stewart were all born that year. As far as uh, some random prices, Bull of a Watch, and that was kind of a top-of-line watch. You could get it for $24.75. You could get apples at $0.23 cents per pound. You could get a dozen eggs for $0.55. Cents. You could buy three cans of Campbell's tomato soup for a quarter. Uh, you could buy a brand new mattress for $25. A new house would cost anywhere between $4,600 and $10,000, depending <laughs> on the quality and level of your home. And gasoline, 15 cents a gallon. <laughs> Popular songs of the day included Don't Fence Me In by Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, Rum and Coca-Cola by the Andrews Sisters, Accentuate the Positive by Johnny Mercer, and... At Christmas time, of course, it was White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Uh, other popular films of the day were Anchors Away, The Pale Face, The Lost Weekend, Spellbound, and other horror films released in 1945 included The Body Snatcher with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, House of Dracula, Picture of Dorian Gray, Isle of the Dead, The Spiral Staircase, and Hangover Square. So that's what was happening in 1945. From the vivid imagination of that master storyteller of the macabre, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Alice! comes Twice Told Tales, a trio of terrifying experiences, brilliantly portrayed by that personification of all evil on the screen, Vincent Price. In this tomb, you will live a pulse-quickening adventure as two friends dabble in the black arts, and a secret buried in the grave returns to haunt two unfaithful lovers. You died, Sylvia. You've been dead for 38 years. In this garden of evil unfolds the diabolic delineation of the most fantastic horror conceived by a distorted mind. Since my father made me what I am, he used its poisons to change the chemistry of my blood. that poor creature die. You would die if you touched me. In this house of seven gables, filled with the brooding mystery of an ancient curse, its very walls creaking with evil, 
A chilling tale of vengeance casts a spell of horror beyond belief. That was his blood. The pensions are cursed. Every male member of the family has died the same way. A skeletal hand turns the pages for three tales of the supernatural based on stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The undead, the unearthly, the unholy. We are back for our second movie, Twice Told Tales. I feel like I'm being the awfully negative in this episode, but Richard, why don't you start out and and tell me what you thought of this movie? Well, you know, Vincent Price did a lot of other anthologies or kind of ensemble cast pieces around this time. I mean, you know, Tales of Terror is a superior um, anthology film, but of course we've already covered that in a previous episode. Think like Comedy of Terrors, you know, or The Raven, where you've got all this, you know, big ensemble cast. Just think of other anthologies that were being done around this time, 60s and 70s. Twice Told Tales is not necessarily at the top of, of anybody's list. And I think, had Vincent Price not been in it, it probably wouldn't be as fondly remembered today. It suffers from being far too long. It, it is, in my opinion, I mean, it's almost two-hour long film. I think um, the film would have flowed better if it would have been closer to the 90-minute time frame. Two hours, if you think. 1963, a two-hour length for a B-flick was was unheard of. Um, I mean, you know, even even like a, a, a mainstream film clocked in at less than two hours, usually. So, um, odd that they chose a, a, a big, long length, and for only three stories. That said, I did enjoy it. As with all anthologies, I think it's a bit uneven. I think that for me, the first segment played out the best. I would have saved that for last, actually. You know, the three segments, of course, we have is Dr. Heidegger's experiment, uh, then the second is Rappuccini's daughter, and then the third being House of the Seven Gables. Dr. Heidegger's experiment was by far the best. I think it should have been the the uh, the finale. What about you? It's interesting. You talked about it being too long. I had forgotten that it was a full two hours. Uh, I this does not have a wraparound story, so the segments are definite, clear beginning and end. They do not tie to the other stories. Kind of cool, though. They, they show the book and pages being turned. Yeah. I thought that was a nice yeah. touch. But I didn't watch this in one sitting because of that. And so, therefore, in my mind, this did not seem as long as Dead of Night did. But it, of course, is. And had I sat there and watched it in one sitting, I can see myself getting a little restless. And especially like with the House of Seven Gables segment, this is, you know, not the first adaptation of, of that particular tale. Not the first one with Vincent Price, because he did it in 1940. 
that's actually the next film that Carl and I are going to watch for our 31 Days of Halloween. And so it's not entirely fresh in my mind, but I do remember that there's similarities, but there's also some big differences because this version is definitely more horror, whereas the 1940 version is definitely light on the horror elements. It's more of a gothic tale, whereas this version is is definitely kind of accentuating the, the horror element. Vincent Price is vastly different in the two films. Equally as great... But definitely very, very different. And and Rappuccini's daughter, I, I don't know that that's the weakest segment uh, of the three for me. And I felt that dra- dragged on as well. So, um, but I really like the first segment. This is a movie that started off, I think, really, really strong. And I think it was because of just the way that Vincent Price, who plays Alex Medborn. The chemistry that he had with Sebastian Cabot, who who plays Dr. Heidegger. I love Sebastian Cabot. I do, too. Did you ever watch Family Affair? Oh, I used to love Family yes. Affair. I've seen every episode. You know, I would wake up in the mornings and watch it. And, uh, you know, Sebastian Cabot is, is um, you know, he did an episode of The Twilight Zone. He was in The Time Machine. But he also hosted his own horror series to, uh, that I've never seen. I have it, and I just have never had the opportunity to watch it. It was called... Uh, Ghost Story or Circle of Fear. Yes, yes. In 1972. I remember that. It didn't last very long. Uh, I think maybe 14 episodes. I've got the complete run of it, and I really want to revisit it. Now that I, I've seen him in this, it's like, man, that's, I, I need to sit down and watch those. So anyway, I, I really loved the, the chemistry that they had in this, and I just liked, you know, you, you got the feeling that these were two guys that had been friends for a long time, but then once Carl's, Carl Heidegger's, long-dead fiancé Sylvia Ward, played by Mari Blanchard, comes back to life. I, you know, I had kind of forgotten how it played out, but then I, I almost knew where this was set. I was like, as soon as Vincent Price has that one look, I'm like, oh, yes, now I remember. You know, a, a love triangle, classic love triangle, played out against, you know, a life-giving serum that comes through the rocks, and, and the whole idea of this of the water dripping on the body and keeping her body young. I love that whole thing and the thunderstorm that caused the crypt to open and just the, I don't know, the way Sebastian Cabot acted in that whole sequence and and the terror and excitement that he was, I don't know, I loved it. I, I just loved it for Cabot. Vincent Price was just doing what he always does. Cabot just, you know, was like the icing on the cake for that segment. And I thought that Mari Blanchard was good as well as Sylvia Ward for what she had in, in the part. She's playing off against two greats. But I thought it's a it's a simple story, small cast, and it worked out very, very well. I thought that the pacing was perfect. I again I think I would have would have saved this for the end. I know I understand why they, they didn't, because House of Seven Gables ends in a big house explosion and that's always a nice ending for a film, but I think this was the best of the three segments. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, knowing what was coming, but in a good way. I mean, sometimes things are predictable, and yeah. you're like, "Uh," but this, you like, you know, it's coming. You're not sure. You kind of hope, and then when it does, you're like, "Aha! I was right." So it was good. I, I did really like that. You know, this was a uh, supposedly based on the works of, of Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I, having never read any of the original pieces, I don't know how accurate they are to one degree or another. But interestingly enough, of the three stories, uh, 
Only one of them appeared in Twice Told Tales, which was a two-volume set released by Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1837 and 1842, a total of 36 stories between the two volumes. It's considered, you know, classic literature. Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote a very well-known review of it in 1842, praising the work and calling Nathaniel Hawthorne's originality remarkable. This was the collection of stories, so there's a lot of other stories in there. So I thought that was, um, you know, when you get praise from a legend like Poe, who was not a legend at the time, but in retrospect, you know, that, that says a lot. And unlike our previous film, this, this movie has one director and one writer. Robert E. Kent wrote the, the screenplay for all three segments. And when you look at, at, at the, the interesting horror cred that he has, both high and low points, I mean, it does add something to the film. On the low end, in the earlier part of his career... He wrote Zombies on Broadway in 45 and Genius at Work in 46, both with Bela Lugosi. He wrote Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome in 47 with Boris Karloff. He wrote The Werewolf in 56. But around this time, he, he did uh, several other films with Vincent Price. He did Tower of London in 62 and Diary of a Madman in 63. Um, and when I Diary of a Madman, for some reason, and it made sense when I, when I, I, I saw it, I, Elements of Rappaccini's daughter, for some reason, came into Diary of a Madman. There was a certain elements that reminded me of 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 that. I, I don't know that I can explain what necessarily, but uh, and that was actually before I realized that he had written Diary of a Madman. So I don't I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure why that why I connected that, but I did anyway. So this is another little thing here with Dr. Heidegger's experiment being the only story from the original collections of Twice Told Tales. Um, House of the Seven Gables was actually its own separate novel written in 1850, and Rappaccini's Daughter, the second story, was actually published in the December 1844 issue of the United States Magazine and Democratic Review, uh, and it was uh, published again in 1846 in a uh, collection called Mosses from Old Manse. Interesting title. I mean, I, I love this segment. I, I, I didn't find anything wrong with it. Yeah, I, I agree. Perfectly paced. Rappuccini's daughter is just weird. Yeah. I mean... Uh, it made no sense to me. I, you know Carla's scientific brain was exploding in this one. She just kind of kept looking at me like, really? Really? And I was like, yeah, it's... Pushing my limits a little bit too on the believability. So yeah, a, a plant and you touch it and it puts out a cloud of what was it a poisonous cloud? Yeah, and, essentially. And, but yet like, it's the thing that's keeping the daughter alive. I it just it's kind of it's which makes weird. sense, right? It. It's like yeah. if you're taking that, how was that not killing her? It's never explained. I, I'd be really interested to to read the original story to see. Was it as nonsensical, or was it just this version of it? I don't know. Do you know, do you have anything in your notes about the actress uh, that played the daughter? Um, so Joyce Taylor played Beatrice. The, you know, the only thing I have as a couple of films in the genre that she did, uh, Atlantis, The Lost Continent, and uh, William Castle's 13 Frightened Girls, which I've never seen that particular film, actually. So She the, was... 
unique looking. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, not your typical. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, but not your typical. She's a, a someone I would call more of a handsome woman. Uh, you know, I mean, she's pretty, but she's That's not a like a. No, it's not. I don't mean it derogatory, but you know, it, I don't know. She, I, I was fascinated by watching her because I don't know if it was her mouth or her eyes or her cheekbones or something. She just, she was unique, and I don't recall having ever seen her in anything. I, I agree. She was very, very. She did have a unique quality about her. Um, <laughs> handsome woman. That's that's. Well, I, I, I know what you're saying. I agree. Um, now her co-star. Uh, the character of uh, Giovanni, played by Brett Halsey, yes, and that yes. is somebody that's got yep. a connection. Yeah, uh, Philippe Delambre from uh, Return of the Fly. He was also in a few other random things. He was in the Atomic Submarine, which I've never seen. That's uh, fun. He was in an episode of The Bionic Woman, and uh, remember Tech War? Did you ever watch that back in the nineties? I didn't. Isn't that Shatner's? Uh, Shatner's quote book that he wrote or book series which you know he just had his name put on it let's be honest um, it was a four movie you know series that then became like a regular television series Greg Evigan was the star I remember seeing all of those back in the day I'm not even sure if the maybe the series has been released but I don't know if the movies have ever been released and I don't know how they would play today 1990s you know, early CGI computer technology looking that don't necessarily wear very well. So, um, nonetheless, um, familiar face there in, in Brett Halsey. You know, and Vincent Price, I mean, as I, you know, will say a million times, he's always good in what he does. This particular performance, I mean, I, I kind of, I hate to say it, I've seen better. Uh, I didn't really particularly care for his character. I always like Vincent Price when he's either playing the over-the-top, mustache-twirling evil character or anything other than that, basically. you know, I, I'm not necessarily a fan of the outright bad guy, Vincent Price, because I just I think that it, he doesn't necessarily pull it off very well in this, in this particular film. He, you know, like in Witchfinder General, he's 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 bad in that, and and he does really good in that. But a couple of other times I've seen him where he, he's playing the bad guy, and I just I'm not necessarily convinced. I think like he's just one line away from from kind of slipping back into the the charming kind of self, and that's what I was feeling here. Maybe it was because I had just seen him even in the in the first segment, right? I mean, technically bad. He he kept that from his friend for so many years, and and but he did feel. A measure of remorse, and so, and he didn't. You kind of felt sorry for him in a way. I, this, you know, I, I didn't feel sorry for for his character Rappuccini. Well, really. I think those other, I think the difference may be that in those others, there's nuance. Like in the first one, you don't, you know, you think he's bad, you don't really know. He does does a good way of covering it. There's depths and levels there. When he's a flat out bad guy, and there's no ambiguity. You know, you're right. I think there's something missing that's that makes the performance least interesting. The other thing I was just dawning on me, in the first two segments, he's playing an older man. I mean, uh, you know, in Dr. Heiger's experiment, he starts out old, and of course the formula restores his youth, but, you know, he's old, and in Rappuccini's daughter, I guess he's not old, but he's the father figure. And is this 
did this was this any kind of transition for him where he started like playing older because if you look at his earlier movies uh, especially like the Poe films which I want to talk about in a minute you know he's he's more of a leading man a little more youthful he's more uh, I don't know his roles are more independent maybe then depending on relationships with others does that make any sense I, yeah I mean I, I know that I mean, how he looks is... I mean, the mustache will... If he's wearing a mustache or not a mustache, I mean, that can almost shave years off of him and, and, and change how he looks entirely. And I think, was, if I'm correct, Mask of the Red Death came out... Was it 64, I think? And he's clean-shaven in that, if I'm, if I'm correct. And actually, it looks fairly youthful in that film. So he's not an old man by this point, but he's not the the incredibly young, baby-faced Vincent Price that I saw last night when I watched... Uh, well, yeah, The Invisible Man, he, he pops up at the very end looking very, very young. I don't know. I mean, he, he was thinking of the films that he did after this. I mean, as the 60s go on, he becomes gradually less a leading man and, and more part of, a, of an ensemble cast. There are exceptions to that. I mean, and obviously, you get in the 1970s, you get films like Madhouse or Theater of Blood, where he's, you know, or even Abominable Dr. Fives. I mean, clearly, he's the lead in those films, but. But he's an older. His character is, he is older. older. They're not yeah. trying to disguise him as somebody younger. No, no. And that's, I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah, I mean, I could see that. Um, so, the last segment. This is going to do nothing but uh, humiliate me and say something about my illiteracy, but I am not familiar with The House of Seven Gables. I've never read the book. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know how faithful this is. To me, this was sort of a ripoff of House of Usher. Uh, I mean, especially with how it ends, uh, with the house imploding upon itself. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. I mean, I've never read House of the Seven Gables completely. I did read segments of it in high school. And it's not a horror story. I mean, it's again, it's, it's much more gothic. Even when you watch the 1940 film version, it's not a horror film. There's elements that are, again, kind of are gothic... You know, which then kind of segues into that gothic horror a little bit, but it's it, this was played off this version. Yeah, definitely was trying to play off the House of Usher feel to it. it was much more horror based than than the the story itself or the uh, you know the the first film version that Vincent Price did. And that leads me to my overall evaluation of the movie. 1960 House of Usher comes out. 61, Pit in the Pendulum. 62, Premature Burial. 62, Tales of Terror. 63, Raven. And do you sense a pattern here? These are all Poe-based, some very loosely, stories. All very successful. All Roger Corman, all American International. Was this not an attempt to Absolutely. pattern after that? Okay, Absolutely. so you hear Roger Corman. He's low-budget filmmaker, you know, reuses footage, all that. Watch... Twice Told Tales, and you, if it does anything, it demonstrates what a craftsman Roger Corman really was. In this, to me, the sets are obvious. They seem tight. It almost seems like there's not enough room for them to move around. Corman, I think, a lot of the time used real locations. There's something about the looks of his films that are just 
tangible, they're lush and beautiful in some cases. This, I think, was an attempt, and it, it totally different studio, Admiral Pictures, whoever they are, you know, I, and even getting Vincent Price, I just think it was an effort to try to cash in, uh, just, just didn't work nearly as well. And also, again, showing my illiteracy, I don't, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, he's no Edgar Allan Poe. No, I mean, no. I don't believe he's known for horror stories or... He wrote us again, he wrote some some fanciful tales, I guess, is, is, is the best way to put it. Wasn't it Nathaniel Hawthorne did the Devil and, and uh, the Daniel and the Devil and Daniel Webster, which I there's a version of that film. Um, I want to see that. It's a it's a classic version, a black and white version, like circa 1940s, I think, that I saw a few years back, which is really good. Again, not straightforward horror though. No. Now who's illiterate? It was not Nathaniel Hawthorne. Stephen Vincent Benet wrote Devil and Daniel Webster. Yeah. Okay, then we have to redo this. I mean, I Nathaniel to... Hawthorne wrote The Scarlet Letter. I mean, okay, now we that's have to not horror this. unless you're talking about the Demi Moore movie. But Why did I think Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote that? Okay, well, then this is... Yeah. And I only I don't know that by... I mean, I'm I'm at a computer. That's how I know that. I didn't know it. Okay, okay. well, we're not... We're, yes, we are. We're including that. That's, no, we're not going to do Yes, that, that, that's a little... You know, that makes us human. Oh, okay, gosh. You yes. know, we, we, we got to bring Bill Mize's opinion of us down a little <laughs> Okay, that's fine. Uh, wow. Okay, I'm. You know what? I. I. So, great podcasting. Yeah, so again. where were we? Uh, so where were we? So yes, absolutely. I agree. Uh, this was cashing in. Again, going back to my original statement, Nathaniel Hawthorne. No, not a Edgar Allan Poe. Never intended to be. So, but House of Seven Gables being a. The idea that it was was you know kind of the old dark house kind of thing. You know, what I remember the 1940 version was that it, it seemed more, the sets seemed more elaborate. That classic 1940s, let's build a really nice big set. Now, here's an interesting thing. I've actually been to the House of Seven Gables, and it is a, it's a small home. Three years ago now, um, I went to Salem, Massachusetts with my friends and uh, Joe and Phil, and I uh, spent a week up there with them, and we, we did a couple of days in Salem. And I did a couple of things. The House of Seven Gables is a big tourist attraction, and there are several houses on the property now, which is right there by the harbor. And one house they did like a Halloween-themed thing, you know, and kind of talking about the history and a little bit about Nathaniel Hawthorne and such. And then we went back the next day to do the formal tour for the House of Seven Gables, and it's a very small home with but it you know it's got the secret passages and stuff like that and it, it definitely very very cool if you're in you know Salem you absolutely have to do it so I will totally own up to this very funny tale of how frightening the house of seven gables was for me so we're doing the tour and there's like a room at the top that there's two ways to get to it there's the hidden staircase and then there's the staircase but they tell you if you're claustrophobic don't go up to this room because it's very very small but you have a choice of how you want to get there. Well, you know, I decide that we're going to, you know, I'm going to follow the group and we're going to do the, the hidden staircase. Sure. So I'm a man of extra girth and I get in this thing and it's like it's a U-shaped thing where you have to go and then you do a, a sharp turn and then go back the other way up this little super narrow flights of stairs. 
they didn't explain how small this staircase was. So I turn, I've got people in front of me, people in back of me, and I get to the this part where I'm supposed to like then do this sharp turn, and I'm like, this fat boy ain't going to get around this curve. I'm like, oh my gosh. I was in sheer panic. I was like, I, there's just, I can't go forward. I can't go back. I'm like, you know, I'm going to die in this spot right here. <laughs> I I sucked in like I've never sucked in, and I managed to turn the corner, and I'm like, oh, thank you, dear God. <laughs> and, you know, that was absolutely frightening. And funny now that I laugh about it, the moment I was crapping my pants, so this is not good. That said, you know, it was very, very cramped up in that room. A lot of fun, though. It's definitely uh, a lot of history there, and that's it's. there's a lot of other things on this little... Um, piece of land essentially is you know that literally you have the house of seven gables and if you know like two blocks away there are houses and people are living and you know you kind of envision that house of seven gables is is this big expansive mansion no it's not now mm. it's not as expansive as you see here at all it you know there was certainly a lot of rooms to it and and but you know no it's and it's not very glamorous looking from the outside um, so take that for what it's worth. They definitely did the Hollywood number on this one a little bit. It, it's not based in reality, and it's not the big old dark house that, that it's presented in this film. It, it definitely is not. Interesting. So I did have some little, some little tidbits here about the film. Directed by Sidney Salkow, who did lots of films and television work. And a question for you. He is listed as the director on U.S. prints only of The Last Man on Earth. And then there's, like I believe, an Italian director on the Italian prints. Did Sidney Asalka actually do anything on this film? I couldn't find one way or the other. If he was just given credit or what would he have actually done? Did he work with editing the film and, and they just gave him directorial credit? I don't know. I know there is a story there. I don't remember what it is. So we definitely have old business. Next okay. Week. That's that's your homework for next yeah. time. Talking about some of the cast from House of Seven Gables, obviously Vincent Price plays Gerald Pinchon. Interesting that uh, he does not play the same character in the 1940 adaptation. He plays a character called Clifford Pinchon. I believe Gerald is in the 1940 version, so... Beverly Garland, of course, she's a familiar person. I immediately thought of Bill Mize when she popped up because he gave a, uh, a fantastic uh, segment on her in his very first episode. Of course, uh, she plays Allison, and we know her from a gazillion films, The Alligator People, It Conquered the World, Karuku, Beast of the Amazon, Not of This Earth, The Neanderthal Man, episodes of Science Fiction Theater, Twilight Zone. She was Ellen Lane and Lois and Clark and my first time seeing her was in My Three Sons yep. uh, as Mrs. Douglas. And, of course, the character of uh, Jonathan, was it Maul pronounced? Yes. Uh, yes. Richard Denning. Uh, another familiar face, of course. Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Black Scorpion, Day of the World, and a Target Earth, and other films. So uh, definitely some familiar faces in this one. That's about all that I, I've, I've got. I mean, I, I liked it. Not my favorite Vincent Price anthology. And again, I, I think Dr. Heidegger's experiment's the best. I would have saved it for last, but I get it. Big Exploding House, you got to save it for the end. It is readily available. 
Came out from uh, Kino Lorber on Blu-ray for $20, so you can add this to your collection. My version came from a DVD box set of Vincent Price Films, the MGM uh, box set that they put out, because at one time, I believe, was a midnight movie. Yes, that's what I have it on a, a double feature with, I believe, Tales of Terror. Uh, yes, that's the same one I've got. Any other final thoughts? I don't think so. I uh, I did enjoy it. I mean, I'm being hypercritical. You know, it's not great, but I enjoyed it. It's worth watching. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, you know, if you if you are running out of Vincent Price horror anthologies and or you've seen all the Poe ones and you want to dabble into something made around that same time period check it out but i wouldn't put it up on the top of the list there's other films from this time period that you should see before seeing twice told tales come to the asylum come to the asylum to get killed come to the asylum Yes, I think the time has come to take Byron's toys away from him. To get killed. Come to the asylum. To get killed. Asylum. Now you hurry and get dressed, and I'll go down the hall and... Uh... Asylum. Starring Peter Cushing, Britt Eklund, Herbert Lom, Patrick McGee, Barry Morse, Barbara Parkins, Robert Powell, Charlotte Rampling, Sylvia Sims, Richard Todd, James Villiers. Asylum. <laughs> exciting film you'll ever see. In a bizarre kind of job interview, Dr. Martin questions four patients at the Dunsmore Mental Institution to determine which one is the former head of the hospital, Dr. B. Starr. We're back, and if I've been negative so far, I am going to more than compensate for it now because our third movie, Asylum, I love. It has been for many years my favorite anthology, my favorite amicus movie. I, I can't wait to start talking about it, so let's go. I hated it. I uh, did not. <laughs> asylum, or as I said earlier, the asylum. <laughs> no, that's uh, the, uh, the, I'm going to call it the asylum. Asylum from 72. To me, yeah, great, great horror anthology you know amicus can be hit or miss sometimes they didn't always knock it out of the park although generally speaking i think you can usually find at least one good story in, a, in an anthology to kind of make up for one of the weak segments um and while this one may have had you know weak segments there's definitely some definitely some good stuff in here let's be honest uh any film that's got peter cushing in it is going to get a an extra notch or two and he does play a good part in this one. Not yeah. a big part, but he plays a good part. Yeah. This, of course, comes from the mind of, of Robert Block, who is well known. I mean, let's just get that right out. I mean, he the the framing elements come from a story he did called A Home Away From Home. And then he wrote the rest of the screenplay. Of course, Robert Block 
Psycho at the top of his, his credits, 17 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock. The Deadly Bees, not necessarily yeah. a high point well, for him. you know. Uh, but Torture Garden, which I know I think I love more than you do. Yeah. The House of the Dread Blood, which is a lot of fun. So here's the, the Star Trek reference. And before you do that, I, I want it known, and we should have waited and recorded, but I was able to name oh, the you Star were. Trek reference, the, the episodes that Robert Block wrote. So give me some credit. Oh, you get 100% credit on that. Yeah, and three of my personal favorites, um, and you knew them all. Uh, from the first season of Star Trek, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Which is one of only three episodes from the first season that does not feature Dr. McCoy. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he was not actually part of the the opening credits in the first season. So hmm. the other stories uh, being Errand of Mercy, which is the first Klingon story. He was not in that. And he was not in the pilot episode where no man has gone before. So there you go. Uh, then Cat's Paw, which is uh, from the second season, which is a good old-fashioned Halloween episode. I love that one. And Wolf in the Fold, which starts off with some great belly dancing and then turns sharply down the, the fog-shrouded alley when uh, we've got good old Jack the Ripper on the loose again. Three great, great episodes. So you know when you've got that kind of cred, you're getting into some good territory here. And uh, I think that is one reason why Asylum really works really well, because Robert Block is great. And the wraparound... I I think it's the wraparound story that makes me like it so much. Uh, It, you know, it's integrated into the stories. It's got a fantastic twist. It's it's just an interesting idea. Very compelling. it's 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 really really slick. I think the the way it all works together. And interesting, you you know, we talked about how the best is usually saved for the last. I I actually think that the that the first episode, Frozen Fear, is my favorite. I don't know if it's the best. It's my favorite. But the interesting thing about Asylum is the last story really is part of the wraparound. Also, it is. So yeah. that's so cool. I just I. I love the way the movie's structured and, and the story that it that it's telling. So we've got the framing story. The wraparound story is about Robert Powell playing Dr. Martin and Patrick McGee playing Dr. Lionel Rutherford. It's Dr. Martin, right? Is yes. the one who is essentially applying for a job, and his application process is that he has to go around and interview inmates and... Essentially, he has to he has to pick which one of them is the is a former doctor at the asylum who went crazy, and if he selects the right person, he'll be considered for the job. That's got to be the craziest job application process. I personally would never want to go through that, but I think I would have just you know what I've seen this in a horror movie. It doesn't end well. I'm going to leave. And it's very uh, purposeful that it's. Dr. B, letter B, period, star, because uh, each of the characters in the story's name starts with B. There's Bonnie, Bruno, Barbara, Dr. Byron, and the first room he goes to that has Bonnie, um, he doesn't think that would be Dr. Star, you know, because it's a woman, and the orderly says, how do you know Dr. Star is a man? So that's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think this is really pushing it too far, but there's some a really interesting sort of undertone uh, about 
how uh, Dr. Rutherford thinks these are criminals that cannot be reformed. There is nothing that can be done to help them get better, to regain their sanity, uh, and this is basically a prison. Whereas Dr. Martin's philosophy is, you know, he's appalled when he sees these people and there's not being anything done to help them. So it's a, a, a definite opposite philosophy on how to treat yeah. the mentally ill. And uh, again, I'm probably putting too much into it, but that's a very interesting concept as well, uh, I, I think. I thought it was interesting how the similarity between this and Dead of Night and how it started. The car driving into the, the countryside estate for all intents and purposes, but with vastly different results. You think of any movie where you're going into kind of the deserted countryside and go to the estate, nothing ever good happens in those. You know, if I <laughs> don't so, these people watch movies. <laughs> exactly. I was like, if someone told me, yes, go to go down this road and travel for two hours into the middle of nowhere and you'll find an estate. And I'm like, no, no, because there's gonna be a vampire, werewolves, zombies, there's gonna be someone, a lunatic is gonna be killing No, I've seen enough movies, no. And you mentioned the you know beginning the similar the end is sort of similar too. I mean it's uh, not the same characters, but it's also a loop. Of it sorts. does. Yeah. So yeah. That, who knows? Dead of Night could have been a huge influence on. Yeah, you wonder. Lock. Yeah, absolutely. You wonder about that. And you also mentioned the car driving up. There, there was a composer of the music for this, but they actually use more public domain music. And Night on Bald Mountain. Yeah, I just I, I played it in band in high school. I, I know that song. I love it, and it's set such a tone. You know, I mean, you hear that music, you just know something horrible is going on. Oh I, yeah, I, I, it's a little over dramatic. Yeah, great start, great 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 opening. So our first story is Frozen Fear, featuring Barbara Perkin Parkins as Bonnie and Sylvia Sims as Ruth. And who's the guy? Yeah, I'm gonna say I didn't. I didn't <laughs> like, write down the guy. Who? Yeah, who's? Yeah, who's the guy? No. As you're looking that up, <laughs> I will. I will give my thoughts on the film or this segment. I, this one was was definitely really good. Definitely very very creepy. The imagery of, of the 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 wrapped body parts. You know, you know we've seen you know the hand, the moving hand and stuff. A little different when it's wrapped up and and there's almost the 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 shrouded element to it is like okay you know when a hand's walking along sometimes that plays off almost funny depending on how it's done here it's like what's underneath the wrapping you know and 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 the fact that it's something's wrapped up the the idea of being buried alive or whatever i don't know that added to that and that wrapping is so good. I mean, he was a good rapper. The oh, twine yeah. the is twine, like perfectly yeah. symmetrical. It's, absolutely. And the, the head, you know, when it sort of breathes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was so much better than if they would have just left random parts like moving around. It would have been, it would have come across obviously more fake and would have been almost comical, I think. By having it wrapped up, it hid any imperfections that might have been present otherwise from a special effects perspective and again enhance the segment and it kind of gets rid of the question about well where's all the blood if you chop someone's head off it's going to be bloody would the name walter mean anything to you richard todd he plays the the man the classic classic tales from the crypt type ec horror comic story revenge from beyond the grave it's 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 just classic and 
and I'm sorry if there's more you want to say about it, but I love the way that it's brought back into the wraparound story with the reveal of the character and her face. Yes. Yeah. Uh, very well done. Very well oh, done. Love it. It's just... Barbara Parkins was in a couple of other things, Circle of Fear for one, Valley of the Dolls. She was in Mephisto Waltz. I was going to ask, have you ever seen that? Uh, not that I recall. I have a feeling I have a long, long time ago. I've, isn't that with Alan Alda? I think so. I, I, it, I've been wanting to revisit that. I mean, isn't it supposed to be not like straightforward horror, but I mean, doesn't it have like some supernatural elements to it yeah, I believe yeah. yeah yeah I've never seen that and I just when I saw that I was curious if you ever had seen that I should have mentioned in the in the wraparound segment going back a step I don't think that I was able to pull up anything interesting on Robert Powell but Patrick McGee who played Dr. Lionel Rutherford of course well known was in a gazillion things but uh, Clockwork Orange he was in another horror anthology, The Monster Club, which I'll be revisiting here shortly. Uh, he was in Tales from the Crypt, Now the Screaming Starts. Uh, he was in The Skull uh, with uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Mask of the Red Death, which we mentioned. He was also in Die, Monster, Die with Boris Karloff and uh, Dementia 13. So uh, amongst many, many, many other credits. So well accomplished and a very, uh, very familiar uh, actor. Yeah, and I, I'll just throw this in. You'll realize this as we, as Richard names the cast for all of the segments. Overall, fantastic cast. Oh, absolutely. A lot of big name stars. I mean, for heaven's sake, Charlotte Rampling. I mean, I think when you look at the three films from a cast perspective, this aside from Vincent Price and Sebastian Cabot in Twice Told Tales, Beverly Garland to a lesser degree. I mean, you've got a lot more people in this film than, than was present in Twice Told Tales. Um, and, you know, I guess it's not fair because many of the cast of, of Dead of Night could be better known. But because there are so many British films, I mean, as I was going through the list, they each had a lot of film creds. I admittedly didn't recognize a lot of them. Um, and so sometimes those the British films may have been much more popular over there, but if they didn't get released over here in the states, and you know they we we wouldn't see them so or know about them. So I can't say entirely that Dead of Night didn't have as well known people, but not as well known to us here in the states. Next up, the Weird Taylor, Barry Morris as Bruno and Peter Cushing as Mister Smith. Barry Morris. Uh, Professor Victor Bergman from Space 1999. Uh, He was in The Changeling, The Invaders, of course, well known for his role opposite David Jansen in The Fugitive. I forget his inspector's name, but he's he's the guy that's chasing him throughout Mm -hmm. the entire run. And uh, he was also in an episode of Way Out, which is a series that I'm really trying to find. I know that all of the all the episodes exist, right? But they're not all available publicly because I know that uh, Martin Graham's talked about that at Monster Bash, that some of them are only at, and I forget, maybe somewhere in New York City there's a, like a film archive, and you can go there and see them, but they're not publicly available. So I don't know if his episode is one of those that's publicly available or not. That's a, a show that I'm, I'm trying to seek out. There's a lot available on, on uh, YouTube, so I'm trying to figure out what's out there and what's not. I know I've seen some episodes, 
and uh, you know they're definitely not of the same quality of the Twilight Zone, but they're they're fun. But uh, anyway, and, and you know whatever became of Peter Cushing? Oh, he's my Doctor Who reference. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were going to count him. <laughs> Well, I mean, is he really a Doctor Who? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but you know what? I can't find any other one, so <laughs> yes. So he he does get a reference. Right. I mean, he did play, you know, the Doctor in two movies, even though it's not part of the television series. He he did play the Doctor. He was, you know, time traveling in the in the TARDIS, but yes, a different version of the Doctor. We'll go into more detail about that next month. That's a early segue, but Nonetheless, that's that's my Doctor Who reference, as loose as it may be. Wonderfully weird segment. Peter Cushing did his part in two days. And I'm not even sure why he couldn't have done it all in one. I mean, there's there's really not much to it. One of those classic cases where uh, you bring in an actor for a day or two, throw his name on the cover of every poster and every, you know, thing, headlining Peter Cushing in Asylum when he's actually got a small role. Uh, if you go into that expecting this is going to be nothing but Peter Cushing you'd be disappointed but he does come off in this segment and does incredibly well what are your thoughts on the weird Taylor I I, am sort of fixated on the uh, mannequin in that to me he looks like Dr. Rudy Wells from Six Million Dollar Man (laughs) Martin E. Brooks I mean yes it's a very you know hairy mustachey type mannequin and um, it plays a big part in the um story it, you you kind of know it must at the beginning uh because why would they put that much attention into the, yeah. like, this mannequin yeah. but you don't know how and it is it's really cool how they tie that up but it, remi- yeah. it reminded me of of a early 1970s doctor who storyline which i don't think this would have been inspired by but it did come out before this movie uh spearhead from space and then terror of the autons a sequel story in which this nesting intelligence basically animates plastic and so plastic dummies in shops come to life and come bursting through and they have like guns built in their hands and stuff like that it's got, it's a creepy segment and they the autons come back in the uh, in the 2005 doctor who uh, continuation revival in the very first episode to show that this is a continuation and and they are just as creepy as that. Anytime you got dummies coming or wax uh, mannequins coming to life, uh, things never end well. And that was a really good moment in the in the final part of this segment where it was just it was. Yeah, you're right. He does kind of look a little goofy, but um, uh, and the Martin Brooks reference is really good. But still, yeah, when the hand moves and stuff like that, yeah, that's really, really good. And it's another revenge tale straight out of, like, EC Comics, you know, uh, more about greed, I guess. And uh, Barry Morse's character is very interesting because he's sympathetic and you care for him, but he does something bad. And then he kind of uh, doesn't... You could, you've got a decision to make then, you know. You can either do the right thing or you can try to get away with what you did. And, you know, he makes the wrong decision and it comes back to haunt him. It's great. Yeah, very, very good segment. One of my my favorites from from this movie. Next up, Lucy comes to stay. Charlotte Rampling as Barbara and uh, Britt Eklund as Lucy. Of course, Britt Eklund immediately gets recognized for her multiple roles. Man with the Golden Gun, Wicker Man, What the Peeper Saw, (laughs) Um, Six Million Dollar Man. She was in the second... Uh, pilot movie for that wine women in war she was the 
woman? Uh, well, she was like the Bond girl in that one. In that particular movie, Lee Majors, Steve Austin character is a comes off as a James Bond type wannabe in that one. She was also in Battlestar Galactica, The Monster Club. She was also in something I've never seen this, and I don't know that I want to. I think it's got like a three something rating in IMDb. Have you ever seen Satan's Mistress from 1982? No. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to be at the top of my list, but you never know. Those things come. That might be the low hanging fruit that Bill Mize talks about uh, from the rotting tree in the back of the orchard. Anyway, uh, and you you really talked about Charlotte Rampling, so, you know, what what do you have on Charlotte Rampling? Well, just she's a, these days, a well known, respected actor. One of those that started out, and I'm sorry, I don't know her her resume, but. I was just surprised to see her in this because she will go on later and even in recent years as an older woman with the roles that she's played, which none that I can remember, but uh, I'm sure she's been nominated for Academy Awards. You would know her if you saw her. Uh, I've got to at least think of one thing that she was in. Uh, Well, she was actually in Dexter. The TV series. Yeah, okay. She played Dr. Evelyn Vogel. And See, I know the name, and I just, I and I like you, I'm like, I should know what she's been in, but nothing's immediately coming to my mind either, so. Yeah. So what did you think of this segment? I think it's the weakest. Um, it's not bad. It's, it's sort of standard. I mean, I think we've seen other ones like it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's okay. It's not bad, uh, but... Um, and not really, sort of lacks the morality tale sort of that the others have. Um, I mean, it just sort of happens, but I don't know what the point really is. There's no... I agree. Yeah. Yeah, this but, the, this segment, yeah, it didn't do much for me. I mean, like I guess it wasn't bad. It just kind of, compared to some of the others up to that point um, and, and where everything was headed, I, to me, is just kind of like, I hate to say, but it almost seemed like filler a little bit. A little, not necessarily. I mean, other horror anthologies certainly have that that segment that's just outright filler. I wouldn't say that that was as bad as that, but yeah. I mean, the acting's good. The, the production oh, yeah, absolutely. is good. It's well yeah. made. It's just the story doesn't pack quite as much a punch. Yep, absolutely. So then we get to our final segment, the Mannequins of Horror, featuring Herbert Lom as Dr. Byron. Of course, Herbert Lom. Long list of creds for him. Of course, playing Dreyfus in the Pink Panther movies was probably how I first remembered him. Uh, the Dead Zone Spartacus. He was in the 62 version of Phantom of the Opera, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. He was in Count Dracula in 1970, the Jess Franco film opposite Christopher Lee. He played Van Helsing in that. Yes, I saw a note that this movie includes two people that play Van Helsing, Peter Cushing and yes, Barbara Long. Yes, yes. He was also in uh, And Now the Screaming Starts, as well as Dark Places, which is a horror anthology with Christopher Lee that I have, I've seen, and, and uh, it didn't necessarily impress me. So That came out on VHS during the Dynasty craze. Joan Collins is in it, and yeah. I can, I'll never forget that box. All it had was Joan Collins on it, and uh, I have never seen it. I... I my copy's a bootleg copy off I may have even been off YouTube so I don't know it kind of like yeah I saw it I've got it you know I think it has come out though formally on on Blu-ray I believe uh, not too not too you know in the far distant past yeah powerful ending to the, to the movie very creepy 
what are your thoughts? I, I see. I always forget that this is tied into the the main story. On its own, it's an odd little story. And oh he, yeah, yeah. He he creates little robot toys of people, and he's created one that looks like himself. That they have you know metal bodies, but their heads look like people, and he can by the sheer willpower animate this and and make it you know move around and. I guess that's our clue that it's because he doesn't have a flashback. Right, right. Uh, so I guess it goes right into the story. Right, essentially. right, yeah. right. So in fact, they at least on IMDb they call the wraparound story mannequins of horror. I I like it. I I always in memory think, oh, I really don't care for that. But when I see it, it's it's entertaining. I like it. Yeah, yeah, I, I did too. And of course, as the story wraps up, then we we get that pseudo dead of night reference again to where we have kind of a a the loop as you said you know it ends with you know someone going out to the to the middle of nowhere and and, and knocking on the door essentially so uh, what did you think of the big twist here the reveal of uh, dr star's identity um, I didn't see it coming. I don't think. Is this the first? This isn't the first time you saw it. It's a, no. It's the second time I've seen it. But I, for some reason, I, I have very little memories of seeing this. You know, as I, I, I have memories of like the opening scene and and the ending, but not the twist. And and yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I one of those weird things where, and it wasn't that long ago that I saw, but maybe 10 years ago, maybe longer, I guess. So you see so many films after a while, certain things really stick out in other ones. And if I remember when I was watching this, I wasn't just sitting down exclusively and watching it. I think I, I there was a time period where I, I, my work, when I started working from home was pretty mind numbing. I was doing just straightforward, like procedural editing. So I could watch like three movies during the day. Oh, I love it. I, to me, it's one of the big twists in movies. I don't think you see it coming. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just, I really like it. <laughs> I, yeah, I have such a love for this movie. I, it, it's hard to even explain why, other than I just love it. Well, in this, I guess, as far as like Amicus's run, I mean. Oh, I did want to point that out. I had their uh, chronology here uh, of their anthologies. So they started with uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horror in 1965. A classic, yeah. Torture Garden in 67, House of Blood in 70, then this, then Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror from Beyond the Grave. So this was about smack dab in the middle. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I don't know, Dr. Terror is really good and Tales from the Crypt is really good. Uh, but I just have a, a particular fondness for this one. Yeah, like I said, I want to get a better copy of this. This did come out on Blu-ray from Severin. I want to say in the last year. Was it? Yeah, and you know, I swore I had that, but I couldn't find yeah. it, and I had to watch the DVD. It's a little bit pricier than the others. You can get it for less than 25 though, so that's not bad. I remember when it came out, I think it, it had like a limited edition special stuff and I don't think it has that anymore now I think it's just a straightforward DVD I don't think that the special package is available but uh, well worth having in your collection yep. and I, sh- I wanted to two more things here the weird tailor had actually been adapted previously 
has an episode of Thriller in 1961. So I really want to... I've got that series that I... It's on my stack of things to watch, but I really want to visit it. It's probably higher on the stack because Carla really wants to watch it. She she watched some episodes of Thriller earlier this year when they were running them on late night um, me TV, like two or three in the morning, and then she like the next morning she's like, I was watching this thing last night, and it's like you know, and I had fallen asleep, and you know, she was like really really wanting to know about it, and she was describing it to me, and I was like, I don't know, and I said you know, then finally I got out of her as Boris Karloff, and it's like oh Thriller, so. Um, yeah, you know you. Yeah, got... She could have led with that. And said, yeah, that could have that could have saved a lot of like <laughs> me sitting there like, oh my gosh, what is this? And of course, the you know we forgot to mention, but the director Roy Ward Baker, mm, yeah, uh, who we talked about uh, a few episodes back uh, with Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Long list of film creds: uh, Quatermass in the Pit, Moon Zero Two, The Vampire Lover, Scars of Dracula, Vault of Horror. And now the screaming starts, uh, keeps popping up, and uh, the Monster Club, another film that keeps kind of popping up in this episode. Yeah, absolutely, Asylum, a lot of fun, uh, highly recommended. My favorite of the lot. Do we want to pick our favorites from each? Yeah, right you know, um, Steve Turek, quite a few episodes ago, kind of laid down the challenge to us to uh, kind of come up with our perfect horror anthology. That's a little daunting, uh, but a project I wouldn't mind doing sometime as a fun episode. Uh, we would need some preparation yeah, for that. Yeah, and I really wanted to, us to like write our own wraparound story and how we would incorporate those stories and be clever about it. Yeah. I just, we'll have to do a, a sequel to this episode because I just... We, Maybe, yeah, we, 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 you know, we'd have to go more than three films. I think we'd have to... But, you know, how many anthology films do we cover? I don't know. There'd have to be some planning for it but something i'm definitely up for but we're kind of doing a a pseudo answer to steve uh steve's challenge and from these three movies i i kind of went this way as like i chose what i thought would be the best title the framing story and then i picked four segments that i thought what you got i liked the title dead of night you know uh, of the three i twice told tales you know you know if you're not doing all Nathaniel Hawthorne, that wouldn't make sense. But this is where I'm going to get confusing because I liked Dead of Night as the title, but I really liked the framing story from Asylum. Originally, I was liking the framing story to Dead of Night, but as we were sitting here talking, I thought, no, I really like Asylum's framing story. So, I don't know, maybe we'd have to call it Asylum to, to, to make sense. I don't know. So, I would choose... and. Again, this is weird because I'm not picking maybe the logical choice from Asylum, but I'm picking four, and I'm not I'm not sure in any particular order. Dr. Heidegger's experiment would have to be included in there. I went with the haunted mirror simply because I don't know. I mean, I I I, I don't know why uh, because that wasn't my you know one of my favorite yeah. segments, but I felt like I'm trying to explain myself here and why I chose it, but. For some reason, I'm like, you know, I, my mindset was like, do, does, do you want there to be a weaker segment of the four to make the other three shine? That was my mindset. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, the uh, recipe. I suppose you could do like all four that knocked it out of the park. But and I went with the Weird Taylor because I, I really like that one. And obviously the Ventriloquist Dummy. I don't know. You know, I maybe I would take the Haunted Mirror out uh, the more I think about it. Oh, maybe I would pick Frozen Fear 
from Asylum to throw in there, maybe. I don't know. That would be the one that I have a question mark now that I'm thinking about it. But I definitely would want Dr. Heidegger's experiment, The Weird Tailor, and The Ventriloquist Dummy in there. Yeah, and mine's a similar. Uh, I would do Asylum. I, I like the framing story, but I would bring in segments from the other movies in the same type of format. So, for example, I would pick The Ventriloquist Dummy, but I would have the survivor be there telling that story yeah, and yeah. be there in the asylum. Awesome. Uh, and maybe, uh, well... I guess the dummy doesn't survive, but it would be cool if he spun on the bed and he had his <laughs> dummy. Oh, yeah. Uh, some some kind of twist we could add there. I would also do uh, Dr. Heidegger's experiment. Um, again, let's see, we would have... I guess no one survives that, do they? You could have... You could have Vincent Price. His character survived. Yeah, he did survive. So he would be an old man, and maybe he starts out and he's young. And when I keep saying spinning on the bed because that's from you know Frozen Fear when the girl spins on the bed. Well, I think even Triloquist. I'm going back to what you said. It'd be cool if he spun around and he he was was the dummy. And yes, yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But so maybe Vincent Price is like young at the beginning and then old at the end, and we see, oh my gosh, it's true. In fact, he's aged and de-aged. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, So that'd be good. And then uh, Frozen. And fear uh, again I just I love that and uh, yeah I'd leave the wraparound uh, eh, I wouldn't do the mannequins of horror I I'd end it differently but anyway that's mine yeah yeah definitely something I think we should revisit on a broader scale at some point and uh, but yeah it gives us a taste of it so yeah well that was fun we got a lot of uh, stories there. Yeah, we did. This was a lot of fun. Um, love a good anthology. It's something about Halloween. Uh, I always just like to, to crank out several anthologies every year. And there's so many good ones out there. As I'm looking at my shelf, there's just so many to choose from. Both, you know, uh, classic and, uh, you know, there's some good contemporary ones. There's some good Christmas themed ones as well. Um, to you know with with Krampus and and uh there's one I can't remember the name of it but uh the one with William Shatner where he plays a radio DJ it came out a few years ago um that there was a lot of fun uh he, he plays like a, a drunk radio DJ or something and that's that's the wraparound story and and the different people having the different stories are all listening to the radio station. That's how they're all kind of interconnected. Maybe it's like a Christmas horror story or something like that. Mm. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, fun, fun segment. That will conclude this portion of our episode. We'll take one more break and uh, be back to wrap up. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end... We sprinkled just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. 
Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Welcome back for our new business segment. I'm going to shake it up a little bit. I want to put September home video releases and the TV Terror Guide together because I have an item for us to drink coffee and talk about. All right. Uh, But birthdays in the month of October. Uh, Just a couple highlights. A lot of people born in October. Bud Abbott, October 2nd, 1897. Donald Pleasance, October 5th, 1919. Edward Jr., October 10th, 1924. Bella Lugosi, October 20th, 1882. And Elsa Lanchester, October 28th, 1902. I had 02 and I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, some big names uh, for birthdays. Oh, definitely. Anniversaries. It got a definite TV theme uh, on this one. The Twilight Zone premiered October 2nd, 1959. The TV movie Don't Be Afraid of the Dark premiered on October 10th, 1973. That's coming out on Blu-ray. They announced that that's going to get a Blu-ray release. Really? Yes. Huh, I did not know that. I love that movie. Uh, Invisible Man Returns, I believe you mentioned earlier, October 12th, 1940. The Old Dark House, October 20th, 1932. And then I, I will mention it every talk, October until the day I die, Halloween, October 25th. That premiered right here in Kansas City. What are your thoughts on the fact that they've, they're they doing two more sequels? I'm okay with that. I like the last the, one. Yeah, it, it was okay. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but I didn't hate it. Um, yeah, I, I, I. It, it it delivered what you wanted out of it. I think that there was so much hype around it that if you're a big fan of that franchise, you were kind of maybe you put it up on the pedestal a little bit too high, and maybe it didn't necessarily deliver. Halloween is a franchise that is all over the place, but I thought it did. did yeah, good. yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the long-awaited sequel to Season of the Witch. So. I have been uh, wanting to rewatch that because, yeah, I couldn't have gone in and not been a little bit disappointed. So now that time has passed, I really I, I need to watch it again uh, to see. I, I have a feeling I'll like it better. Okay, so home video releases. Not actually a lot in October, which is a bit odd. But October 8th, something from Arrow called Toys Are Not For Children, 1972. It's a Euro, Euro horror film. I did want to mention this. It's not classic, but The Haunting of Hill House that was on Netflix uh, is coming out on home video in a director's edition from Paramount. Excellent, excellent show. I think we mentioned it on here before, but it is 
you know, based on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, and we have The Haunting, which was, is a classic movie. Uh, I think everyone would, would like it if they watched this. Haxon from 1922 coming out on Criterion. I could swear that's been out on Criterion. I thought that it was Maybe already. it hasn't been on Blu-ray, though. Oh, that's probably it, yeah. That's that's a good movie. That's a creepy movie. Yeah, I like. I think the fact that it's a silent film and, and you almost look like you feel like you're watching real footage at times. It's that's very creepy. Very well done. Yeah, uh, the Omen collection. We might have mentioned that it was coming out last time. All the Omen movies in a, a set from Shout Factory. A 1970 movie called Sudden Terror uh, from Kino Lorber. Ever heard of that? Mark nope. Lester, your what the Peeper Saw boy is in that one <laughs> as well. 22nd, we mentioned this before recording, Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. Ah, yes. You may know it as Dracula's Dog, but in either case, that 1977 <laughs> classic coming out, it's a fun movie. I like it. it. For what it is, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And on the 29th, uh, we have from VCI, The Human Monster, 1939, Bela Lugosi movie. Man of a Thousand Faces from Arrow is the 1957 biography of Lon Chaney with uh, Jimmy Cagney. And The Devil Rides Out from 1968, Hammer film, is coming out from Shout Factory. You missed one. I did not. Oh. I don't think. Okay, let's see. Everyone by now knows Godzilla. Oh, that wasn't all oh, I was going to okay. go. Well, you know, you tell me first, because that's going to lead yeah, me into yeah, our Yeah, yeah Godzilla's a big one. Yeah. Uh, Paul Nashi fans, there's a new Paul Nashi film coming out. There is? Out. Yes, it does not have an official uh, date, but it's supposed to be coming out in October. Really? It's the... Is it The Beast of the Sword? Oh! Uh, yeah. Coming out from Mondo Macabre? Yes. yes. I need to check into that. I, uh, that that's going to be similar to the... Uh, Oh, what's the Mummy movie that just came out? Yeah, Mummy's Revenge. Yes, where you know it'll be available, and and you've got to order it from this, you know, the Mondo site, and it might be available elsewhere. But uh, they haven't given the official date, other than it'll be coming out, I think, mid October. Mm. So, All right. I don't know if that's necessarily a Halloween time film, but um, well, yeah. it has. Doesn't it have the the werewolf, the Vladimir. Does Tennessee? it have the werewolf? I think in it? so, because I didn't think I was interested, and then I saw. Oh, it's one of his. I, you know, I, I don't have every Paul Nashi film. Obviously, I'm still discovering Nashi, but I'm appreciating him now. Whereas there was a time that I, I didn't, and um, I've been trying to get some of the stuff that's been coming out. You know, because I still regret not getting that Vincent Price collection. So I, I definitely snatched up the Paul Nashi ones. I think the only one I don't have is was a Devil Incarnate, the the Blu-ray yeah. releases that you were kind of you saw. You've got it. Yeah. For some reason, I I don't know why I haven't picked that up. You said it was a little. Did you say it was a little rough around the edges? Or was it a little? I don't know. It's very maybe. very good. I might need to add that on the list yeah. then. Yeah, uh, the Beast and the Magic Sword, and it does have uh, Valdemar Daninsky. Oh, okay, well, that so yeah, definitely gives you all that. the reason to, to get that. Yeah. I think the only other Nashi one that uh, I don't have on Blu-ray that's come out is the Dracula's Great Love, mm. but I have that on DVD. I have that on that Elvira movie, Macabre, mm. so I, that's good enough for me. So yeah. anyway, so, so yes, Godzilla the. Criterion Collection box set 1954 to 1975 is coming out. We've discussed on the Facebook group page, you know, the strategy of, of getting that because it is a, a bit pricey and that perhaps uh, the Barnes & Noble Criterion sale may have it on sale. I think a lot of us are banking on that. 
half price. Um, and yeah, it's going to be about $100 roughly. Yeah. So. But here's my question. Why is everyone showing Godzilla, those Godzilla movies right now? We know that this month Comet had um, their stompathons. We talked about that last month. This is where it blends into the TV Terror Guide. On TCM in October, Friday nights, the monster of the month is Godzilla, and they're showing all those movies that are coming out in the Criterion set. That happens all the time. It does? It, are, are, so are they <clears throat> the same? Like, are um, they showing the Criterion version? I have noticed over the years that when a classic movie is, not just horror, but any classic movie if it's well known or if it's part of a box set is getting released on DVD or Blu-ray, if TCM has the rights to that film, they will be showing it on the month that that, that movie is being released hmm. on DVD and Blu-ray. I, I, I noticed that trend years ago and it still follows suit. If they've got the rights to the film, they're going to play it. So how can they have the rights, but then Criterion can release it on video? Are there different well, rights for television? I'm talking television about, like, yeah, rights for television. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, as we were talking, even, like, within Turner Classic Movies, streaming rights are right, complicated right. because there are certain things that are blocked on Sling TV, and I've realized also blocked on YouTube uh, TV. So I, at first I thought it was just a Sling thing. It's not. YouTube blocks it as well. So it's... Since those are not straightforward traditional cable outlets, they there's certain things that they don't have the rights to stream. Woodstock, for example, when they played Woodstock, I was excited. I was going to record that. Nope, it was blocked on Sling, and so I didn't mm. get a chance to watch it. It is interesting, though, that Turner is showing them, but Comet's also showing them, which is... Uh, you know, they're not owned by the same... Yeah, and so I thought about that. You know, there's different versions. There's dubbed and subtitled and all that, and I, I think Criterion's going to have them all. But I thought maybe the Comets were versions that were American, you know, edited versions. But this time around, they've also, also been showing Gojira, as well as Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So I don't know. I don't understand that. I, I, I don't either. I'm not going to complain, though. We're getting, you know, I've... Oh, yeah. Most I have most of the movies in in, in a commercial DVD, and I, I got the sets from what was it the the the, the what Toho sets the that they put out. You know what I'm talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. The, the ones that came out with both the US and and uh, Tokyo Blaster or I don't know. Um, I know there's some kaiju expert that's you know getting ready to hit me over the head, but you know you all know what I'm talking about. Those sets that came out with the US and the original Japanese versions, first time that we got a chance to see a lot of those. And that was the one that put out Gojira originally. I have most of those, but there's still some of those titles like Godzilla Raids Again or Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Hedera and and, and Gigan and, and some of those that I don't have good quality of and I'm I'm anxious to get the upgrade on those. And of course all these will be Blu-ray and I'm anxious to see what extras they have on the set. And it doesn't look like this is going to be a huge box that's going to, you're going to try to have to find a spot for. I, I saw a picture, and it looks like it's going to be a regular you know, case that will fit on your shelf nicely. Mm. It looks like there's, because um, there's, what, 15 movies? It looks like they're going to put two movies to a disc. And uh, it looks like they're going to be kind of fitting into a slimline case. So... 
for those collectors who were wondering what huge monstrosity you were going to have to try to find room for, it looks like that might be an easy fix as well. So hmm. on my Christmas list, I like the art. Uh, this week they released a trailer for the collection yes. and the, the sort of pop arty, vibrant colors. Uh, oh, yeah. The Godzilla, I think, is cool. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's been the debate. Is it going to be on the half-price sale or not? And I think that it is. It, will it sell out? Most likely. But I think even if it sells out, I think you could still order it. It just may be backlogged. I know it's on my Christmas list, so hopefully it'll be under my tree on Christmas morning. I, I will I will wait patiently, but I'm thinking a, uh, a fun uh, Christmas to New Year's. Even though I'm working, evenings might be filled with introducing Carla to Godzilla, which she's still on the fence about Godzilla, you know. She, that's one of her weak areas, but she said she's willing to give it a try. She said she just feels, she hates to see animals suffer, you know, even if it's a guy in a suit. To her, she'll have a hard time seeing, seeing uh, Godzilla or uh, Hedra or the smog monster, you know, get defeated. But nonetheless, it, I'm looking forward to it. So I feel like, you know, here we are, middle of September, or well, I guess we're to the end, but when this airs it's october it's halloween you know we happy halloween but uh so tcm is is full of movies this month um they're they seem to take a different strategy every year this year it seems to be like thursday night is a theme and then friday night is the monster of the month godzilla uh the themes that we have this year on october 3rd is bewitched so movies all about uh which is not elizabeth montgomery (laughs) uh on the 10th black magic the 17th, Ghost Stories, the 24th, The Undead, and then really the night of the 30th at 7 o'clock is where it kicks in. It goes clear through to the morning of November 1st, but they're starting out Thursday night with a, a, a group called Short and Sweet, and these are horror movies that are, you know, just an hour, hour and 15 minutes, sort of shorter, and then they're they're naming actual Halloween Day horror classics. So that's when your big uh, familiar horror movies will be. I don't have any specific titles, but you can look them up uh, on TCM and, and see uh, some good ones. I don't... Have you looked at the schedule? I have, and, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm a little underwhelmed. I didn't see anything that just really yeah, it's stood out to me. It seemed like the same old, same, same old. Yeah, I, I, I did make a quick scan for you know anything new that I definitely want to see that haven't seen and I, yeah I didn't see that but nevertheless they're great movies and um, they'll be available easily in October on TCM alright Richard what is up with you uh, you've mentioned you've dropped them sprinkled them throughout the episode some references to some of your activities but why don't you consolidate those for us now and <laughs> Tell us what all you're doing. Uh, you know, I've been doing some reviews for Dread Media, as always. As we record this, I think September's been been full. I think three of the four weeks there'll be reviews. Or was there five Mondays? I think five Mondays in September. Three of those uh, will have had reviews of mine. I, I'm As we speak, Des hasn't posted God Told Me To, but uh, that got reviewed and it'll be up over there. And then uh, I'll be doing some Vincent Price films for pretty much everything I'm doing. I'm doing that for Dread Media. I'm doing it for the uh, Memberverse Monthly Audio Cast, and uh, 
for my blogs. I'm doing the 31 Days of Halloween, and I'm going to be an official crypt keeper, as I've been the last couple of years. And uh, this year's theme is Vincent Price. Now, I didn't have 31 horror films of Vincent Price, because I over the years I've been doing Monster Movie Kid got launched uh, almost to the day as we're recording this seven years ago, So, uh, which seems crazy that I've been doing that for seven years. But uh, over the years, I've done some Vincent Price films. So I didn't have 31, but I'm doing a few fillers at the first part of the month. So we'll be doing stuff like uh, The Story of Mankind and uh, More Dead Than Alive and House of a Thousand Dolls and uh, his television series Time Express. Once we get to around, I think it's the, the 5th of October, everything from that point forward will be horror film related. And so... I'll be covering uh, three films for Dread Media, uh, Bloodbath, Bloodbath at the House of Death, Escapes, and From a Whisper to a Scream. For uh, Memiverse, I'll be covering uh, his uh, adventure film from 1940, Green Hell. And uh, then the rest will get covered from uh, start to finish, mostly in chronological order, although I'm going to save a few of the good ones for last like the Fives movies, I'm going to be formally covering that, and as well as uh, like Mask of the Red Death and House of Wax is going to be saved for the very end. And I can give you a sneak peek. I'm going to be doing a day after Halloween. I've got one more Vincent Price film in me, so if you hang in with me until the 1st of November, I'm going to do a non-horror review of The Whales of August. So... Uh, yeah, it's going to be all about Vincent Price this month over at uh, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com and kccinephile.com. What about you? Can't wait for those. My countdown to Halloween this year is uh, ABCs of Horror, I think I mentioned last time. So uh, I'll start with a number, and then the next day will be a movie that starts with a letter A, letter B, etc. I think you all get that. So I'm trying to pick ones I've never seen and maybe some obscure titles. Uh, some that really aren't strictly horror. I've been g- catching a lot of sci-fi movies that uh, have been on the DVR, such as The Flame Barrier. That's the most recent one I watched. Uh, so, yeah, you're invited to pop in over there and, and read a movie a day. I'm taking Sundays off this year. Um, Slacker. Well, <laughs> you know, only 26 letters in the alphabet, and you add a number, that's 27 days. Four Sundays, there's your 31. So, anyway... <laughs> Uh, so that's really what I'm focusing on now. Fun yeah. theme. I like that theme. That, that's, that's something different. Yeah. That'll be fun, even though you're slacking and taking a day off. Yes, well. Otherwise, yeah. you'd be like me having to start like the second week in September, <laughs> so I'm not like cramming all these Vincent Price movies in. Oh, no, that's what I've done. I've watched, I think, eight of them so far. If I, If you literally did it where you watched one a day and wrote about it, it just, I, I, that to me, that's an impossible. And well, and I find that if life happens, then you get behind. Yeah. And I that did that early on is like you know, yeah, or you end up like rushing through a review. So I, I like having him kind of ahead of the game, so that if there is life events, then you know I don't feel stressed out. I can, I can get caught back up. And I, as we record this, we're not even to the end of September yet. We've got a few days left, but I'm about. We're about midway through uh, the, the, the the titles. And plus, I'm going to be doing a fun one, taking a look at old-time radio of Vincent Price. So that's I'm going to be doing like a filler of that and a couple of Night Gallery episodes. And so it's, it's a 
mostly horror with a few other little tidbits to round out the 31 days. Otherwise, I would have had to take a day off. Maybe I should have done that. That's not a bad idea now that I think about it. Anyway. And don't worry, people, just because, you know, I'm writing them in advance, the reviews are going to be just as fresh as ever when they're, when they're actually published. So, <laughs> What are we doing next time, Richard? Well, and this is, has to be the episode you've been waiting for. It has been. You know, when you did Dark Shadows, you know, I, a couple of years ago now, I think, the very first one, I think I casually joked and mentioned that we had to do a Doctor Who episode at some point. Well, it has come time, so not necessarily horror, but there are some horror elements. We're going to be covering the two Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies next month. Why? Because November 23rd is the anniversary of Doctor Who. Uh, It'll be 56 years old this year. And the movies, a little less than that, not much. 1965's Doctor Who and the Daleks, and 1966's... Doctor Who Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, based on the first two Dalek stories aired on the television series. And fairly faithful adaptations with a few changes to the second movie. A lot of fun. Peter Cushing in a very different role. I think you're going to find that he's, he's very unique in these films. He doesn't quite look like the typical Peter Cushing, especially in this time period. He doesn't act the same. I'm going to be throwing all my Who knowledge out next month, so it'll be much as I learned from you during Dark Shadows. Hopefully, you know, you'll learn a little about Doctor Who next month, and uh, uh, that's that's going to be fun. So, Yep, I'm counting on it. You're going to have to provide that institutional knowledge. All you guys have to do, well, number one, is keep listening. We thank everyone that listens and participates. We really, really appreciate it. It makes it more fun. I, I think... There's a saying, the more the merrier. So, you know, keep keep listening. Watch the movies ahead of time. Give us some feedback in advance if you want, or give us some feedback on this episode. You can do that from a multitude of ways. Uh, our phone number, again, is 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Hey. Uh, we've got an email address, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We've got the Facebook group page. Uh, email us an MP3 of... Many, many different ways, and and we do invite you to participate. Other thing you can do is rate us on Apple Podcasts, uh, help maybe expose us to some other people that uh, might not normally know about us or have listened. That's all I've got. All right. Well, then we will close with a song by a group called Asylum. It's called Blindfold. It's from their 2012 single of the same name, Blindfold, available on Apple Music. We'll see you next month. Take care, everyone.